And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello and welcome once again to Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I am, as always, your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti, and this is a very special episode of Earth Destruction Directive. And I don't mean one of those very special episodes where I get addicted to painkillers for the next 22 minutes. You know, this is a very special episode because I have a guest with me, and I'd like everyone to extend a warm, city-stomping welcome to my good friend and cohort, on the Two True Freaks Network, Mr. Sean Engel. Hello, Sean. Hey, Luke. It's good to talk to you today. How are you doing? Everything going okay for you in Oklahoma? Oh, yeah. Everything's been going great. We've been having earthquakes and, uh, you know, uh, hailstorms and everything. So it's it's like a giant monster movie. A giant <laughs> I remember uh, last year here in South Carolina, we had a major snowstorm. And then a couple of days later, we actually had an earthquake that you Holy could cow. feel here in the upstate. And I said, there's been a blizzard and a snowstorm waiting now for radioactive bees because I live in an Irwin Allen movie. <laughs> oh, that would be so sweet to have Irwin Allen do a movie in the middle of your house. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason, we've been having earthquakes here, too, in Oklahoma. And there's people It's like, oh, it's the it's the coal industry and the oil industry doing fracking and everything. I'm like, shut up. It's natural. It's uh, <laughs> But I don't want to get into the whole... Uh, what it is, you know, it's an earthquake with a moving epicenter. It's Baragon. I think we all... Yes. I, mean, I've, I mean, if anybody saw or heard our episode on uh, Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, they know that. You know? Uh, yeah, I think I think they probably ought to take that into consideration as well, because that's, that's about as uh, reasonable an explanation as you know, oil fracking. <laughs> I just love that they call it fracking. And, you know, the, the Battlestar Galactica <laughs> fan in me chuckles every time I hear it. It doesn't get old. Yes, and I'm certain... <laughs> I'm certain whenever, you know, whatever news organization reports on it, you know, there's got to be one sort of nerdy person there just sitting there tweeting chuckling to himself. <laughs> oh, boy. So you got, uh, on the off chance, any giant monster news? Unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, aside from what I watched for the show, I haven't seen anything. I'm hoping with Christmas coming up, there's some movies out that I really want to get. I want to get the Godzilla 2014, mm-hmm. especially on Blu-ray. I finally got my... Uh, home theater set up and I got the rear speakers installed. So I'm ready for a good, loud, explodey, giant stomping movie to go on. <laughs> so I'm thinking Godzilla 2014 would be perfect for that. Yeah. Uh, I, I got the, uh, the Blu-ray DVD combo pack. My wife and I have not had a chance to sit down and watch it. I do want to speak real briefly about that. There were some reports online the week, first week or so that the film was out about the Blu-ray being incredibly dark. Hmm. Uh, to the point where certain scenes you couldn't you, you couldn't make out what was going on. I can report that both on uh, my copy, my father's copy, my brother's copy, the Blu-ray is has absolutely no image problems. Uh, I just loaded it up to the darkest scene I could think of in the film <laughs> and showed it to my wife and said, can you see what's going on? And she said, yes. So uh, 
and she hadn't seen the movie, so she has no context. See, so I, I think it may have just been an early an early press run or something, maybe an early batch that had a real problem with the darkness. But I, I haven't seen personally any any issues with the uh, color level or the, excuse me the the brightness level on the on the Blu-ray. See that? Yeah, I would think there would probably have to be a, a bad batch of the Blu-ray because m- most of the time when they do Blu-ray releases, the picture quality and the color quality is amazing. Uh, for instance, you know, completely off topic, what a, one of my favorite Blu-rays that I own is John Carpenter's The Thing, and that thing is stunning in in Blu-ray. The mm. the amount of sheen that you get off the uh, sort of forms of the alien creatures is just it it, it really sells the sort of drippy, gooey tech or texture of the characters. So right. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they did. It was just sort of a bad release initially. Yeah, and I, and I think my my brother's theory, which I tend to put some stock in, is that it may have been the uh, is that it may have been a, a, a the, the the review batches because there were several sites that had the that had reports of it being really dark, and then several that didn't. So if the thought is that maybe it was some of the ones that were sent out as screeners for the review sites may have been part of this bad batch, but I haven't seen any problems on the retail ones. So that's don't do not hesitate general listeners to go to the two true link to amazon.com and purchase your copy of the Godzilla 2014 in the format of your choice. Yes. <laughs> if you have a Blu-ray player, this is a movie that is designed for that and designed to be watched on the big screen. It's yeah, we, we talked about it on the, on the network. We talked about how much we loved the, uh, the movie and, you know, it's yeah. definitely one should go pick up. Even if it's not Jaws. <laughs> it's not quite Jaws. Now, uh, I do have some giant monster news. Uh, we're going to be talking, uh, if you folks have seen the show notes, you know, we're going to be talking about the original uh, Superia Ultraman tonight. Well, the latest incarnation of Ultraman is Ultraman Ginga S, which is the sequel to Ultraman Ginga. And it is, it is actually being fan sub by two outfits, uh, two outfits that are new to the fan sub game. The first is uh, called Short Stick Fan Subs, which you can find at simplefansubs.blogspot.com. And the other is called Ginga Anon, which is you can find at legendofthegalaxy.wordpress.com. Uh, so I, go check them out. There, they've between the two of them, they've subbed up to episode four. Uh, they're both a little bit behind right now on on the series, but you can watch through episode four, and it's it's really good. It's definitely Ginga S is definitely more of a throwback to a more Showa style series there's a um, you know uh, there's a team that the our hero works with there's actually two different ultra heroes they've been bringing back a lot of old monsters and uh it's got an alien invasion plot so it's actually it's a little more in line with the traditional ultraman motif than the uh, than ultraman ginga was which was more of a teenager sort of show set at a school and stuff like that so that that's worth checking out there uh you know i said um hopefully they'll get caught up there Overtime was doing uh, Ultraman Ginga, but they kind of fell by the wayside. And TV Nihon did Ultraman Ginga, but have not picked up a Ginga S. And I haven't found any other fan subs. But hey, more free Ultraman is always good, right? Definitely. <laughs> and then speaking of free Ultraman, the uh, are you familiar with the site Crunchyroll.com? I've heard about it. I've I've seen some. I think you posted some links on Facebook to certain uh, movies or uh, shows that have been on that. Yeah, Crunchyroll, they are primarily known as an anime and manga online streaming service. And they're like Hulu in that you can get a free membership and get certain 
content and you can get a premium membership and get all the content. Well, ju- they just um, last week, as of us having this recording, added series Ultraman Max onto Crunchyroll.com. Now, as a free member, um, in the first week, you get the first eight episodes and then the second week they'd add the next eight and so forth. And if you're a premium member, you get access to the entire series right off the bat. And hmm. it's, it's, it's again, like Hulu, it's ad-supported, plays in your browser, but it's 100% free and 100% legal because it's licensed from Subaraya with Subaraya's uh, subtitles on it. So Ultraman Max is kind of a, I don't want to say an homage series, but there was a lot of homages to the Showa era in it. And, you know, there's a bunch of Showa era monsters do return in that series so it's definitely worth checking out if you get uh, get some chance get a chance to go check it out on crunchyroll.com and how recent is this series this is ultraman about- max was the either the late 90s early 2000s okay so it's not it's it's um it's not a uh, not an old series by any by any stretch the um the after the first three of the heisai ultraman series which was ultraman tiga ultraman dina and ultraman gaia they became a little bit more um, – they didn't release them as regularly. You know, they, they might take a year off in between series or something like that. So uh, it, it's still right in the middle of the Heisai era. I'm looking up now. Ultraman Max debuted in July of 2005 and ran straight through to April of 2006. Okay. So it, uh, good, it's a good series, and Max is a very classical-looking Ultraman. As a, I don't know if they're going to pick up the movies and stuff. I want to say there was a couple of Ultraman Max movies as well. But uh, worth checking out on Crunchyroll. They also have um, some other. They have some giant robot anime on there, which may be of interest to fans of this show. Also, one of my favorite animes and mangas of all time, Slam Dunk, is on there. And uh, I've talked about Slam Dunk at length before, so I won't get into that now. Now, Slam Dunk—that's the Prince of Ten. That's sort of like the Prince of Tennis version, basketball version, if if I'm thinking correctly, or. Yes, except that Slam Dunk is kind of like the progenitor of most sports manga okay in that it was not not the first but it was far and away the most successful all right and uh i mean so prince of tennis follows on after kind of what was set up in um slam dunk i've never read prince of tennis from what i understand of it it is is more uh i don't want to say serious because slam dunk is not serious in any way (laughs) you know but there's some serious aspects to it uh but anyway it's this is uh i would love to do a slam dunk podcast but i'd be on it by myself i think because uh, (laughs) Oh, for some reason, other other uh, manga fans look down on sports manga. I don't know. I, I, if it doesn't have giant robots or a giant red-haired guy playing basketball, I'm really not interested. Okay, so. there you go. <laughs> We've also got some uh, some toy stuff, which again, keeping with the Ultraman. Um, 66 Action. This is a line of toys uh, that is. Uh, they're out now for Common Rider, and as the name suggests, they're 66 millimeters tall, but despite their small size, they're actually very, very well articulated. And beginning of next year, we're going to get the first wave of Ultraman uh, toys, and this set will include the original Ultraman, uh, Ultra 7, Ultraman Ginga Strium, which is the second form of Ultraman Ginga from Ginga S, and the uh, venerable foe of uh, Baltan Sajin, the alien Baltan. Uh, who dates back to the original Ultraman? Uh, these are pretty neat. They're they're not real expensive. I know the Common Riders. They normally sell them in a uh, in a in a box where you get the, like blind boxes, so you usually have to buy the whole case. Uh, but they're pretty neat, and they're really they said they're well articulated. They look like an Ultra Act that got shrunk in the dryer a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the image you have here now. They're you know for the 66 millimeter. I'm thinking that's you know 
It's about two and a half inches. Yeah, two and a half half inches. Yeah, it's a bit smaller than your average uh, Star Wars figure, but it looks incredibly articulated. The knees and joints. It looks like the elbows even pivot. You see uh, Ultraman here getting ready to shoot his Spessian beam. So it's it's a pretty neat looking little toy for for that size. Yeah, they they retail in Japan for about three hundred and eighty yen, which is about four dollars. That's not too bad. Not bad. And credit goes to Toku Nation for that uh, particular piece of news. Um, in the wake of Godzilla coming out on home media, we do have some new Godzilla merchandise. I'm t- I've chosen tonight to take a look at a couple of silly things. Uh, both of these come from Sci-Fi Japan. The first is from Diamond Select. It is the uh, Godzilla metal bottle opener. Uh, Now, I have used the same Clemson University bottle opener since I was a freshman in college, but if I ever did replace it, it would be with this uh, visage, which is, it looks like the the Heisai Godzilla with his mouth open and... uh, and you just, I guess, put the bottle right in his mouth and snap the, <laughs> the bottle cap off. <laughs> no, that's that's a pretty awesome sculpt there. It looks really good, uh, you know. And it's only, you know, it's only nineteen or not nineteen, eighteen dollars. So that's a that's a pretty good price. It's supposed to be coming. They say it's coming out in spring of twenty fifteen. So a little little wait for it. But eighteen bucks for a Godzilla boat bottle opener. That's <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, it's in, and that one, because it's Diamond Select, you can order out of your previews catalog if you use a mail order service or if you use previews at your comic shop. Nice. So the other one is uh, for our sports fans out there. This is from uh, an outfit called Creative Covers for Golf, and it is officially licensed Godzilla 2014 Golf Club head cover. <laughs> and it looks like if Godzilla was a Muppet, essentially, is what this head cover looks like. Yeah, it's again, it's another nice it's a nice design. Uh, his eyes are a bit yellow from the the pick I have here, but you know it's if you're if you're a fan of golf and a fan of Godzilla, and you know I know those two things don't necessarily intersect all that much, but still this looks like a pretty cool thing to have. Yep, yep. You know. I love. Uh, I said it. He looks like a Muppet almost, and that I love a Godzilla Muppet. So this is about as close as we can get for it. Yeah. And uh, you know, it gives a new a new meaning to having a monster driver or something. <laughs> so not bad. Uh, Creative Covers for Golf is the manufacturer. If you go to their website, you can see where to get that. So that is all the that that's the thing I said before. There's so much Godzilla merchandise coming out now with the new movie, and uh, you know, increased interest in. Uh, you know, giant monsters in general, you can always find goofball stuff like this out there. Uh, the last thing I saw, this just came up earlier this week, the official announcement of Pacific Rim 2 with the complete with the teaser poster showing the giant crater in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, I'm not sure when we're going to get it, but it looks uh, I'm, I'm eagerly anticipating a new new Pacific Rim along with uh, I know at the time that Del Toro said that they were going to do Pacific Rim 2. He did also talk about the possibility of Pacific Rim original video animation, much like was done with Hellboy. Hmm. That'd be and, interesting. You know, I thought, yeah, I know that the uh, I've seen a bit of the Hellboy Oh, what was it like? Fire and blood, or something? It was blood one, and fire and, blood and fi- a yeah. sort of sort of storms was the mm-hmm. other one. I think. And uh, you know they they got the character actors to come in and voice the characters. They got Ron Perlman, and I think they got uh, I think they got the play who played Abe Sapien. I can't remember his name. To oh, come um, in. Um, Doug Jones. Doug Jones. I was gonna say Emily Middleton's gonna kill us if we get this yes. wrong. Yes, <laughs> yes. Please, Emily, don't be upset with us. We remembered. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, that'd be interesting if they could get, you know, say Idris Elba. Well, uh, he, that, unfortunately, they can't. I mean, you could get Idris Elba because well, I think just, yeah. I, I think if if there's ever 
a story that screams out for doing little Gaiden side stories mm-hmm. in specific rim. Oh yeah. Because there's so many years that are just kind of just covered in the, the, in the opening, uh, uh, montage montage, you know, <laughs> that the, uh, that there's all sorts of stories you could tell in whatever time period from the first, uh, you know, f- from the time of the beginning of the rift until the, what we see in the film. So, Oh yeah. But, Time will tell on that one, and I think we're living once again in a new Daikaiju Golden Age that will never end. <laughs> yes, of course, because because all of these genre films will will never ever go away like westerns. Oops. <laughs> <sighs> well, the the thing with westerns is that they became so popular because they were relatively cheap to make. The these giant monster films, along with the superhero films and stuff, are by definition expensive to make. So mm-hmm. it doesn't. It's kind of kind of uh counterintuitive when you think about it yeah <laughs> all right well i think uh we need to take a quick break i'm going to plug uh some podcast promos in here possibly some featuring my guest you oh, never well, know you. and uh, when we come back we're going to get right into it with the first of two episodes from the original ultraman so we'll head on back right after this hi folks sean ingle here and strange disembodied voice here, here. And we're here to talk about the new direction going on over at Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Like our in-depth coverage of the Howard Chaykin pen, Guy Gurker, collateral damage. No, because that book was utter sh**. But we are moving into the Judd Winnick run on Green Lantern, where we'll get stories about psychotic ring wielders, teenage sexual identity issues, and Kyle becoming a nearly godlike bee. And yet, still not as weird as Guy Gardner's warrior face. Yeah, you may have a point there. Plus, we'll be covering the ancillary books that came out at the same time, including Circle of Fire, A Thousand and One Emerald Knights, The Black Circle Green Arrow Crossover, and so much more. Which would easily make up for not covering collateral damage. <sighs> also, if you're subscribing to the show via iTunes, be sure to go to Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys to make sure you get new episodes updated weekly. So, they kicked you off the main feed? No, they just streamlined it, so the two True Freaks proper shows would only be on it. Are you sure it's not because Scott doesn't want a Green Lantern podcast on the network? Uh, no. In fact, he's spoken very glowingly about the show. I mean, he's even offered to come on into a guest bit. He said he really likes it, and despite his fact that he doesn't like Green Lantern all that much, he's come check out Just One of the Guys over at TwoTrueFreaks.com and subscribe in iTunes at Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys. You'll be glad you did, or double your money back. And we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. So we're going to be taking a look at not one but two episodes of the original Subaraya series Ultraman from 1966 tonight. And our first episode is going to be covered by my guest, so please take it away, Mr. Sean. Yes, I shall. It is, the title of this one was The Bloomstone of Barrage, or Village, depending upon how, you know, it got translated. I think you mentioned something that's specifically because... The R's and the L's don't necessarily translate correctly. Mm-hmm. There's some variance between the way the show was portrayed. Yes, in in the Japanese language, there is a very specific uh, confusion between the pronunciation of the letters and the sounds of R and L. And similarly, there is also a confusion between the pronunciation of B and V. So these uh, Japanese title, the Blue Stone of Valage, becomes mm-hmm. Barrage. Mm-hmm. And, and I think... Just, 
but. think actually barrage actually works because it has a more Arabic sound as mm-hmm. we'll see the, the, the site of the show pr- predominantly takes place in the Middle East. Yes. But uh, this one originally aired on August 28th of 1996, and uh, my synopsis goes like this. Our story opens with a strange meteorite crashing in the Middle Eastern desert. Naturally, the Science Patrol is called in to investigate, and is aided by the French member Jim, or American member Adam, depending upon if you're watching this sub or dub. Meeting with the team, Jim tells of the disappearances of other teams sent to track the meteorite, and the Science Patrol suit up to investigate. Of course, the captain tells Fuji to stay at headquarters this mission, probably because she's a woman or something, and the rest of the team and Frenchie head off to the Middle East in the VTOL. Flying over Iran, which is in no way unsafe at all, the patrol encounters a magnetic version of the Ajax White Tornado, which threatens to suck the aircraft in. But some fancy flying by Hayata allows the crew to escape its pull and make an emergency landing. But the crash damaged the radio and bonked Ide on his head, leaving the rest of the crew with the options of leaving the plane and searching the desert desert for this lost city, or waiting for E-Day to die and then going to town on him all alive style. Settling for the former, Jim, Hayata, Arashi, and Cap march through the desert in their bright orange leather pleather jumpsuits, eventually finding the crashed meteorite. The team determined that the meteorite couldn't have been the source of the magnetic beam and wonder just what could have created that kind of energy. As luck would have it, EDA is able to relate that information to the rest of the crew as the giant scarab beetle Antlar rises from the sand and scares the piss out of our simpleton scientist. But when EDA reaches the rest of the team, Antlar has burrowed below the sands once again, invalidating his claims of giant monster attacks. Continuing the trek, the patrol discovers a crater with the crashed remains of another plane in it. Arashi goes to investigate, but falls in a sinkhole and has to be rescued by Hayata and company. While the crew pull their partner to safety, Antlar emerges once again from the sand underneath the crashed jet and threatens the team. Cap fires at the giant cockroach, but Antlar shoots out his magnetic beam and, and pulls the gun away from our hero. Making like the Arthurian knights, the science patrol run away as Antlar <laughs> sinks back into the desert sands. Eventually, the Science Patrol make it to the mysterious city of Barrage, the once uh, once prosperous city of trade, but now a veritable ghost town. Eventually, the crew run into the Arabic-Japanese people populating this town, as well as their incredibly hot princess, Chartham. Surprisingly, the princess speaks perfect English. Yes, English. Just go with it. And she explains this knowledge comes from her ability to read minds. Using her ability to speak English, we're definitely certain that that's, that's the language. <laughs> Chartham tells the Science Patrol of Barrage's history is a prosperous trading center that fell into that fell into near ruin due to Antlor attacking the departing merchants. The Science Patrol asks why Antlor hasn't attacked the town attacked the town recently, and Chartham takes them to the statue of their defender, Ultraman. The patrol surmises that Ultraman must have come to Earth to defend it many thousands of years ago. But now Antlor feels a bit more confident and decides to start smashing up the city once again. Leaping into action, the Science Patrol fire their weapons at the giant beast, but much like Prince of Space, their weapons have no effect on him, <laughs> and he pulls them away with his magnetic beam. As the behemoth bug bashes through the buildings of Barrage, Hayata sneaks away from the group, raises the beta capsule, and transforms into Ultraman. 
Consequences, copyright Allen and Emily Middleton, 2014, all rights reserved, are dealt out against Antlor, but even Ultraman's Specian Beam is ineffective against the monster. Unfortunately, the color timer on Ultraman's chest begins to flash, and as we all know, if Ultraman ever reaches the point of total energy depletion, he will never rise again. Remembering an ancient prophecy, Chartham takes the blue stone from the hand of the Ultraman statue and has Cap throw it at Antlar, blowing it up real good. Crisis averted, Ultraman heads off with his mighty cry of Swatch, and the citizens of Barrage honor his defense of the city. And that's it. That's the uh, synopsis I've got for that show. Uh, but do you want to go ahead and give your opinions on it, Luke? Um, I, I really like this one. I, this is uh, the first one of the series. I mean, we're only seven episodes in, but this is the first one of Ultraman where they get out of Japan and go someplace exotic. Mm-hmm. And we've got a great monster, a good story, and some very interesting little, um, I, I hate to use the term world building, but it's that's for lack of a better term, that's what we get here, that kind of would come into play later on in the series. Not necessarily this series, but in the Ultra series itself. Mm-hmm. I I particularly like the idea that there were science patrols stationed all throughout the world, that the mm-hmm. science patrol wasn't specifically designated to be in Japan, that there was a French one, and they contacted the one in Japan to help him out. So I, I enjoyed the fact that they had this character of Jim, who's from the French science patrol, uh, telling them about uh, a mission that was lost in uh, in the Middle East that he's called the uh, Japanese science patrol to come help him out uh, investigate so i really enjoyed that plus yeah. i love the fact that they all have the matching uniforms i just <laughs> i i really enjoy the design as kind of goofy 60s as it is i i just like the fact that they all have the same uniforms it, it's very them. earnest you know mm-hmm. it's that that mid-60s earnest and this is a science uh, you know a scientific paramilitary organization this is what we wear exactly clearly uh, yeah in the in the subs in the subtitles they the, obviously jim comes from the paris hq also mentioned are the science patrol hqs in turkey and india okay and actually we would see uh, a member of the indian science patrol later on in the series uh not well uh, probably about i think about 10 or 12 episodes from now Somewhere in the middle of the series, we get a, a visit from one of the um, an agent from uh, India to Japan. So yeah, it's it it definitely gives it a kind of a worldly feel between the setting and then having the uh, the French agent with them. And it's you know it's more than just things. They're not just investigating things that happen to be attacking Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I that that's one thing. I, I I think it was kind of interesting. They did take it out of Tokyo to give it, like I said, it gives it a more global feel it gives you the idea that these monsters aren't just isolated to this tiny island in the pacific you know there's things going on all around the world and there's different teams that have to investigate them and bringing in this team to investigate this is a really good uh change up for the show yeah I, i really think this story has a lot of similarities and this is really ironic too like a star trek uh, original series episode mm-hmm. if you think about in the broad strokes the team investigates a strange quote-unquote lost city and they discover a race of people led by a beautiful woman who happens to speak the same language <laughs> and then they help the race overcome the threat of a monster and bring them into the quote unquote modern world i mean you say that that could be a star trek episode that could be a doctor who episode mm-hmm. you know and, and i've i've always made this uh, this kind of comparison ever since i started i kind of had the epiphany couple of years ago about Ultraman and Doctor Who and then upon further research I throw Star Trek in there too all three of those shows started right around the same time they all launched major major science fiction franchises 
and they all have the original shows hold up based on the strength of their story, not so much on their effects and such because they were hampered by budget and time. But the reason why these shows were successful in launching franchises is they have intelligent, well-written shows. And I think Blue Stone of Barrage is a good example of that for Ultraman that could have easily been ported the same type of story to Star Trek and elements of this could have fit into an episode of Doctor Who from the same time period. Oh, I fully agree. The The idea of, you know, a team, you know, the, if you take the idea of the team taking on a a threat of something uh, attacking a town or attacking people who are incapable of dealing with it, that does seem very Star Trek. And if you take the idea of Hayata having to fight this fight this monster, not only and, and being unable to do it through his conventional ways, you know, weaponry and what that it that it takes an element that's not physical to uh, get rid of them it's it's an also an interesting way to link it to doctor who so I, I agree with you totally on that yeah my other thought with doctor who is that you have this um seemingly primitive race that worships a god quote unquote that turns out to be an alien mm-hmm. that's a very kind of doctor who sort of thing and i'd be like oh i know them they live in this galaxy they're no gods they just visited this planet a long time ago mm-hmm. which is pretty much what happens here yeah, you'll see you'll see that quite frequently in Doctor Who. I, I'm thinking of uh, there's a specific episode of the Tom Baker era era called Oh the Pyramids of Mars, mm-hmm. where where one of the characters is uh, supposed to or has was believed to be like the ancient god Anubis, but it's actually just some alien from another world, and the Doctor defeats him that way. So that's yeah. uh, that's a that's a perfect parallel that you could make yeah. between these shows. And and that ancient god in the in the in the uh, subtitles they refer to him specifically as the god Noah, N O A. And now what's what's funny is that and and Noah is clearly an Ultraman, an Ultra hero. And there was a, a series in 2004 called Ultraman Nexus. And the ultimate form of the Ultra hero in that series is called Ultraman Noah, N O A. And it's specifically a reference to this. Now, that series takes place in a different continuity than than the Showa series do. But the idea even there is that Noah was this ancient ultra hero who had visited Earth at some point in the past. And so it's a reference here to Bluestone of Barrage. What I was getting at before with the world building is that this is the first indication in the series that there's been more than one Ultraman. Mm -hmm. That Ultraman's not just some lone fighter from you know the uh, the land of the light who happens to be on earth that there are others and this of course would <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of them now so yeah but uh at the time this was kind of you know kind of a revolution revelation it's like wait a minute there's there's more than one of these guys or there there's a line of them they've gone back in ancient ancient times have been you know fighting this fight mm-hmm. and that's to have this come in you know just seven episodes in that they're having this kind of role building you know uh is something very creative for this type of show, you know, in this era, you know, world building of this type, you don't see, you take for granted in the modern era. Mm-hmm. There's always shows with world building stuff, but to, to see a show, you know, and again, I think this might be where it kind of differs from Star Trek and Doctor Who that at the beginning of those shows, you didn't really see them trying to advance the world all that much or develop in this way. So uh, this is a real credit to Super Ryan, what he's done here in these shows to to try and make it an expansive universe mm-hmm. rather than just, you know, a simple one and done type story. 
Yeah, and we've already tied it in with Ultra Q from the appearance of Ragon. They specifically say, hey, the last time Ragon showed up, we did this. Mm-hmm. So Ultra Q was already connected. So it, it you know, it just, it just would build upon itself. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it said I'd, I'd forgotten about the, the part, not, not the part with Noah, but I'd forgotten about some of this stuff about the thinking that, oh, this is the first time they mentioned there's another Ultra and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we do get some nice uh, character bits. Ide hurts his head again. <laughs> uh, this is what I call comedy with a capital K. Yes, this is this is French Jerry Lewis type comedy of the ridiculous manner. And yes, Ide is just uh, I like how the I like how the characters of the Science Patrol fall into that sort of stereotype that you will see in other uh, like anime shows or the you know, I, I, I'm thinking of shows like uh, Gotcha Band. You have the mm-hmm. certain the certain characters of this team that sort of fall into the same roles that these characters do and yeah. uh, uh, yes Ide is definitely supposed to be a giant capitalized comedy <laughs> character and what's funny is that Ide does get moments to shine of seriousness but everybody remembers him hurting his head and then inventing some kooky device or something mm-hmm. to save the day uh, I, and what I really like is that Uchka, again the only character who doesn't get any real development is Hayata Mm-hmm. Hayat is kind of a blank slate because he's got to run off two thirds of the way through the episode and turn to Ultraman. So yeah. he's just a straight shooter, does what he's told. It's always been very interesting and a lot of fun to me that the captain is pretty much the hero of the first 20 minutes of every episode. Well, and surprisingly, at the end of this, the captain is the hero who defeats Antlar. This was mm-hmm. this is the first time so far of the shows that I've seen that it wasn't Ultraman who yes. uh, definitively beat the monster. It was mm-hmm. the it was this blue stone. Now, if you don't mind, does the blue stone have any other history through that? Has this just been used for this episode? The blue stone shows up again, and there's an episode of Ultraman Max. It's a direct kind of homage to this episode. But that's it. It doesn't, uh, you know, what what the stone is. It's, uh, you know, it, it's implied to be some kind of ultra grenade or something. But it's never, it's not a larger thing. It's kind of a MacGuffin in this case. Okay, but yeah, I, I enjoyed the fact that, you know, even though Ultraman tried his best to to take down these characters, it was nice to see every once in a while the Science Patrol, which is a lot of times rendered ineffectual against these giant monsters, to be able to be the ones to help take it down. Yeah, there's there's a good uh, there's a good beat in an episode much later in this series where basically a monster called Geronimon resurrects. I think it's like 50 monsters. And he's creating going to create an army to destroy mankind, and the Science Patrol are having this desperate stand against them. And uh, Ide gets very fatalistic. I believe it's either Ide or Arashi gets very fatalistic about why are we even bothering? We can't defeat them. We need Ultraman. And, you know, uh, it's either, like I said, it's either Ide or Raj. It's been a while since I watched it. The other one kind of slaps him around and says, don't, uh, you know, aren't you, don't you want to defend the earth? Even if it means, you know, making the ultimate sacrifice, don't you want to defend our home? Mm-hmm. Or are you just going to rely on someone else to do it for you? And, that, and that's a great message. You know, that's a that's a message of you know, self-empowerment and taking action for yourself. That's that's a wonderful message. And what, you know, essentially is is in general a kid's show. I mean, yeah. the, you know, adults can enjoy this, but, you know, kids are going to be gravitating mostly towards these shows. And it's nice that we have these intelligent messages uh, in in shows that I think predominantly uh, would appeal to the younger audience and. So that's the, that's a credit to them that yeah. they're doing and, this. And part of that is also being in the post-war era, 
you know, this uh, got a figure 1966. This is 20 years after the end of World War Two. So the general, you know, the generation that grew up in the wake of the war are now the ones that are starting to move into adulthood and, uh, you know, move into business and move into running their own lives. And it's like, well, are you going to, you know, are, are you going to take control of your own fate? Or are you going to let circumstances that you were born in and circumstances that you exist in control you? Mm-hmm. you know, th- this is not an uncommon theme in Japanese science fiction from this era, you know. Uh, but it's 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 part of a, of a larger motif that we see a lot in, uh, you know, the idea of, of are you going to do something or are you just going to go with the flow kind of thing. It's it's I think here in the West, we kind of take it for granted. But in in Eastern um, cultures, especially in, in a very rigid structure like in a, in Japan, it's not as not as obvious. And you know, that's not the right word, but I think you know what, I'm, what I mean by that. Yes, yes. The, the the example I always use is, and I think I said this to Shag when we did our Doctor Who X Ultraman show, is that in the West we say you know the squeaky wheel gets the grease. In Japan, the, the statement is the nail that stands up is hammered down. Hmm. So it's it's a different just different cultural perception on individualism and, and self-determination. So it, and, and this was stuff that changed, you know, after I said, after the war and going into the modern era in Japan, into the moving from the Showa era into the Heisei and so forth, you know, it's, and, and it's, it's just, it's reflective in, in the pop culture, you know, it's like anything else we get here, yeah. you know, the cowboy diplomacy of, and a term I hate, but it, it's the only term you can use for Star Trek, the original series, you know, was a reflection of our post-war foreign policy and how we handled, you know, how we took care of business. And we took care of business, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> just like Starfleet did. Yeah, essentially, yeah, that's a, that's a good analogy. It was – and you can – you know, not to take us off topic all that much, but you can track that from the the Star Trek, the original series, moving into the next generation, the way that we handled our military from that period to the, you know the 1980s and early 90s. We had a much more, not really our our, our military technique wasn't as aggressive to say. So mm-hmm. you can see I mean, that they had they had a the counselor military. on the ship for yes. crying out loud. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about our feelings. Yeah. Well, and God knows she had to talk about her feelings because her psychic abilities are crap. <laughs> I'm but... sensing anger. No shit. <laughs> Sorry, you can do uh, that. Uh, no, that uh, that that that'll get some traction on on the network. You know, making fun <laughs> of Deanna Troy. Um, Antlar. I love the Antlar suit. One of my absolute favorite. Um, bipedal. I love that I have to make this qualifier. Bipedal insect monsters in, <laughs> <laughs> that I've ever seen. Antlar just looks amazing in this episode. Oh yeah, the giant scarab claws at the front. It is a really good design. It's you know what we'll see in the next episode that we're covering. The the characters aren't all that interesting. I mean they're they're good suit monsters, but this one is just really well designed. The idea of a giant you know boring scarab beetle in the middle middle of the desert is is just a really clever design i really like the look of it yeah and i love his burrowing effect very similar to bugs bunny so i was appreciative <laughs> of that he took the wrong turn in albuquerque exactly um Subaraya would do a lot of reusing sound effects antlar's roar is rodan's roar sped up oh. uh, there's once or twice we actually hear rodan the original rodan roar i think the first time that that we hear antlar 
but don't see him yet. He it's it's the unfiltered Rodan roar. But uh, again, since Subaraya created pretty much all of the Toho pantheon of monsters, they would reuse their sound effects all the time. The the spooky kind of Theravan music when they first walk into Barrage was a standard piece of spooky music that Subaraya would use both in television and film production. That yeah, it sounds like it's from Scooby Doo. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> and. Um, one other thing about Antlar, he resists the specium beam. Yeah, How badass is that? Yeah, because that's usually the that's usually the coup de gras that Ultraman uses to take down the monster, and Antlar is just pretty much standing up to it. I'm like, holy crap! This yeah, just, just it actually put a lot of tension in the in the ending of this fight. Yeah, because you know normally it's you know the color timer is going off, time for a specium beam. Bada boom, bada bing, you know, and Antler, he doesn't even flinch. He literally walks right through the beam. And it's like, okay, this is bad, mm-hmm. you know, because <laughs> we hadn't seen a monster resist, you know, uh, really most of his attacks at this point. So Antler is a tough customer. Exactly. Now, does Antler come back uh, eventually in the series? Antler does not come back in Ultraman proper, but he does return in um, some of the later series. I believe he comes back in Ultraman Max and then in the um, the Ultra Galaxy era, which is what led into the Ultraman Zero films, okay. Antlar makes uh, several appearances through that. That brings back a lot of classic monsters, and he is he is one of them. And then Antlar does show up in Ultraman Ginga. One of the nice things about all the monsters that come back during the Ultraman Zero films or during the Ultra Galaxy series will continue to get reused because they have new suits. Okay. So one of my personal favorites, the original monster that Ultraman fights, Bemular, he shows up multiple times because they have a new suit for him. And <laughs> and Antlar falls into that category as well. So Antlar shows up and he's had some new merchandise because of his appearance in uh, Ultraman Ginga. He has a, a spark doll, which is the smaller, um, eh, I'd say about five inch tall vinyl monster. Okay. Smaller than the traditional vinyls, but they're a little cheaper and also easier to get. So, so yeah, Antlar is uh, he's stuck around. He's he's a uh, he's not, you know, he's not like we'll see in the next episode. Not like Red King, who's just incredibly popular. But he, you know, uh, he he usually shows up whenever there's, uh, you know, they're talking about the original series of Ultra Monsters. Okay. The other effects I really like uh, the miniature work on the temple that Antlar destroys. Oh yeah. I mean, that, I mean, there, there's, you will see some, sometimes where if a show was running, uh, you know, a little bit expensive because of effects, they might skimp on the miniatures. This is not one of them because that's really the only miniature we get. The rest are all um, desertscape and rock. But, I mean, the, 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 the scene of Antlar destroying that temple, to me, for 1966, is feature quality. If that was shot by Toho instead of by at Subaraya's TV studio, that could have been in a Godzilla movie in 66. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't. It didn't look like it was there was balsa wood. It looked like it was actual stone. It was actually uh, made to be full size. So yeah, they did a good job on the uh, miniatures for the show. I agree. Yeah, and so that was it. It's it's just a, a standout scene. There, every now and again, you get one, you get a, a sequence where they do something with the miniatures where everything just comes together. That and that's always been one of them. It's just, and plus it's neat. It's such it's so unique again because it's a Middle Eastern temple, mm-hmm. you know. So it has that uh, that again the the, the Arabic sort of uh, look to the architecture, and the same goes with like the costuming. I mean, yes, all the Arabs look Japanese, mm-hmm. but I think the costuming is really good and really helps sell the um, you know the the this lost city in the middle of the desert and Chartum 
Her costume just looks great. I mean, she looks like, again, she could have stepped off of Infant Island in a Mothra film with her I, I think, Christmas I, look. You know, I think she could have stepped out of like a, a, an, an extra from like Cleopatra. She looked, mm-hmm. she, you know, she was really, you know, if you look at their facial features, yes, you can tell definitely they're Japanese. But yeah, the, the costuming and everything and the set design really sold that this looked like a Middle Eastern village. So they did a really good job with that. Yeah. Like I said, it, overall, I think it's just a really strong episode. And, you know, a, a not not like a message show per se, but a really strong story, a strong adventure, taking the team to someplace exotic and having, you know, a, a, a strong adventure. You know, mm-hmm. just really a good, solid episode of, uh, of, a, of a Daikaiju show, you know? Yeah, it's not it, – it, you're right. It's not a message show, but it's not a show that's unintelligent. There is there is a, a little meat to chew on in there. There's a little bit of, to, to make you think about it. So uh, that's that's what the best sci-fi shows do. They, they give you entertaining action. They give you fun special effects, but they also give you something to think about at the end. Yeah. And this does it in spades. I love oh, it. Yeah. I also like just the, 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 the uh, reference to Mount Ararat and Noah's mm-hmm. Ark. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's again it, it's just little things like that because it's like this is a legendary city but you know noah's ark there's i'm not gonna open that can of worms whether that was real or not but there's always been debate on whether the great flood was an actual event or whether it's a you know something of a legendary event you know what i'm saying and and so putting that in there, there there's oh there's a lot of little bits of christian imagery in the old in, in the series uh there's a later episode where there's quite a lot of uh that there's the one with the um it's the uh uh, Alien Mephilus, who is kind of an analog for Satan, hence hmm. his name being a play on Mephistopheles. And there's a there's a bit in there where he asks Hayata, are you alien or are you human? And Hayata says both. And the first time I saw that, the first thing that popped in my head was that in the New Testament, you know, yes. uh, Jesus Christ is, is both human and divine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's also when Ultraman makes the specium beam, Subaraya specifically had him make a cross yep. with his arms. So it's little things like that. You know, when Christianity is not, you know, it's not it's not what you think of as the religion in Japan, but little things like that as a Westerner stand out, you know, to notice little Christian things like that in this show produced, obviously, in the Far East. Well, and it's not beating you over the head with the ideas either. It's just there as as little things that if you if you see them, you can take account of them. It's kind of like I know uh, bringing it back to Doctor Who. Recently, an episode of Doctor Who uh, had the idea of um, the, you know people credited as being a pro-choice type idea because the Doctor allowed the characters decide whether or not to let this creature that was destroying the moon live or die. So it's one of those things that if you that that when I was watching the show, I really didn't think about it, but other people can get that concept from it if they want to read something into it. So I'm liking that it's not being forced fed to the viewers. Yeah, I agree. Um, one, one odd note about this show. Um, I had thought that every episode of the original Ultraman was on Hulu. I don't believe this one is. Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if this is a situation like we heard with Quantum Leap on Netflix where they don't have all of them up, but I think this is the only one missing. So if you want to uh, see the Bluestone of Barrage, uh, I, I recommend going and getting the uh, Mill Creek Entertainment complete uh, complete series of Ultraman. You can get it on Amazon for like 10 bucks, and it's the entire series, mm-hmm. both with the subtitles and the dubs. 
you can't go wrong with that. So. Yeah, that's that's what I've been watching it from, and it's it, it's it's there's there's no extras, there's no yeah. other thing, but you're just watch. If you're there to watch the shows, they're all there. They've got subs or dubs, whichever one works for you best, and you know it's it's a fun show. Yeah, and Mill Creek is known for doing the budget releases like that, but if you like I said, if you just want the show. That's more than enough for me mm-hmm. because as much as I like Shout Factory's Ultra 7 the box set, and now Ultra 7 has more discs in it because it has more episodes, but that is pretty bare bones too. The only real special feature is August Ragone, a uh, noted uh, Daikaiju um, expert, ha- writes a really nice booklet for it, but as far as special features on the set themselves, there's none. And that costs like three times as much as the Ultraman set from Mill Creek did. Wow. And the old and Ultra 7 only has subtitles. The only dub of Ultra 7 that exists is the tongue-in-cheek one from TNT, and obviously they didn't include that. So, it's like, you know, it's like I like I really like Shout Factory's package, don't get me wrong, but you got you can't question the value on those Mill Creek releases either. Oh yeah. You know. Uh, so any any final thoughts on the Bluestone of Barrage? No, I really enjoyed it. It's like I said, it's it's a good science fiction. It's got some good action. It does some world building and letting the uh, science patrol show that they're not just specifically located in Japan. So overall, just a really good episode. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I said it's uh, Antlar is a great monster. He's a great suit. Some really nice effects and good action. Pretty much anything you could ask for in an Ultraman show. Exactly. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a real quick timeout, and we're going to be right back with the second episode of Ultraman uh, here, right here on Earth Destruction Directive. The tremendous energy which Ultraman gets from the sun diminishes rapidly in Earth's atmosphere. His warning light begins to blink. If it stops, Ultraman will never rise again. Okay, we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Our second episode of Ultraman is Episode 8, which was entitled The Lawless Monster Zone, or The Wild Monster Zone, depending on how you want to translate that. And that originally aired on September the 4th, 1966, on TBS, No Not the Superstation, on Tokyo Broadcast System in Japan. In the South Pacific, small Tatara Island is abandoned by the team of meteorological observers stationed there after severe volcanic activity makes it unsafe to stay. Two and a half years later, a new team is assembled and sets off for Tatara to restart their research. But contact is lost with the team almost immediately, and the science patrol is called in to investigate and rescue any survivors. Captain Miramatsu, Hayata, Arashi, Ide, and Fuji set off in the jet VTOL for the island. Meanwhile, a fierce battle rages on Tatara as the monsters Red King and Chandora clash violently for seemingly no reason other than, well, you know, they're monsters. Mm -hmm. Chandora uses his wings to force Red King back with hurricane-strength gusts of wind, but Red King counters with his claws, wounding Chandora. Red King presses his advantage and rips off one of Chandora's arms and flings it at him as Chandora retreats. Nearby, the subterranean monster Magular observes the battle but does not get involved. As Red King celebrates his victory, the science patrol arrives, and only some deft flying from Hayata once again saves them from Red King's grasp. 
The Science Patrol finds the home base of the observation team in shambles, obviously wrecked by the monsters. Not finding any sign of the team, the captain splits the Science Patrol into two teams to check the nearby caves, the most logical hiding spot for any survivors to take shelter. Arashi, Ide, and Fuji head to the west, and the captain and Hayata head east. Arashi, Ide, and Fuji find evidence of survivors, including dropped cans of food, but also discover that their radios will not work on the island. Even worse, they soon find themselves ensnared in the powerful constricting vines of the carnivorous plant known as Sunflon. Arashi is able to use his spider shot to burn the vines and save his comrades. They then come across an even more curious sight, a human-sized monster who seems to be trying to get them to follow him by leaving a trail of personal effects of a survivor. Using a balloon bomb, a small marker balloon, to tag him, Arashi follows the monster, Pigmon, with Ide and Fuji following suit behind him. Meanwhile, the captain and Hayata have a harder time of it, finding no signs of any survivors. They do, however, manage to find Magular. Preparing to blast the monster with napalm bombs, Hayata is knocked down a cliff face by a Magular-caused rock slide. Though the attack on Magular is successful, Hayata is knocked unconscious and loses the beta capsule in the process. Back with Arashi, Ide, and Fuji, Pikmon has led them to the lone survivor, Matsui. He tells the patrollers that they knew they were in trouble within hours of landing and that the crazed volcanic activity has made the island mad. Their radio did not work and they were forced to take refuge in the caves. Pigmon helped Matsui, bringing him food and water. The scene is cut short by the arrival of Red King, itching to cause some more chaos. Pigmon runs up and distracts the big monster bully, giving time for Arashi and Ide to open fire, as well as use a signal flare to get the attention of the captain and Hayata. Pigmon, however, falls before the crushing boulder assault of Red King and dies. On the other side of the island, Hayata tells the captain to leave him there and go help the others. The captain reluctantly agrees, which gives Hayata a chance to recover the beta capsule and change to Ultraman. Zooming to meet Red King, the two giants grapple back and forth, with Ultraman using his specium beam to knock a giant boulder out of Red King's hands right onto his foot. <laughs> Ultraman grabs Red King and spins him around, tossing him into an outcropping of rocks. Roaring his defiance, Red King is not defeated, so Ultraman suplexes the beast onto the rocks, ending his threat. Later, the Science Patrol has helped Matsui bury his fallen comrades, along with Pigmon, as the sun sets, and the captain muses that while there will always be beauty in nature, nature will not always be peaceful and serene. So what did you think of the Lawless Monster Zone, Sean? This was another good one. This was surprising as well because it also delivers a monster character that isn't like a force of a destructive force of nature. I like the fact that they're putting forth in this show that not all things. And and again, it's another simplistic message of, you know, not everyone who's different from you is evil. Most of the time we see in the show, the giant monsters are out for destruction or to take over the world or whatever. The the Pigmon monster, it's nice that they have him here, and he's a monster that's actually trying to help out these people. So I like the I like the fact that they put this character into the show, especially again this early on, showing that there's a variety of these different monsters out there, not just ones who wanna blow everyone up and destroy everything. Yes, and this is our first multi monster episode. And uh, also features our first uh, monster-on-monster combat 
you know, which, which is odd when you think about it, but it's, you know, it's mostly just been Ultraman fighting the monsters. So we get a lot of aggressive, nasty monsters here. Red King is known as one of the most popular of Ultraman's uh, foes. Um, someone goes so as far as, as consider Red King to be his arch nemesis, as far as being a monster and not an alien like Bolton. Um, and then you get Shandora, who's when he, you know, he, he kind of gets uh, the short end of the stick here because he gets kind of, you know, beaten up and his arm ripped off. Oh, yeah. Ow. <laughs> but he's another aggressive, angry monster. But then, like you said, you get Pigmon, who's now Pigmon is a reuse of the, the suit for Garamon from Ultra Q. And actually, Garamon was a giant monster. But he, he I, to me, he's always going to be Pigmon. He's never going to be Garamon, you know. He's always a friendly little guy. And Pigmon does reappear in the series and is friendly. Every time he shows up, he's friendly to the heroes in the series. Well, that, and, you know, that's great because, like I said, it's nice to see that there are monsters out there, you know, that that aren't necessarily the giant city-destroying ones. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that was nice that the show actually tried to portray these characters, tried to portray a type of character like that in the show. Oh, yeah. I mean, Pigmon was a very popular with kids. Uh, when he reappears later in this series, when we first see him, he's actually sitting in a the toy de- section of a department store playing with toys. <laughs> actually, he's playing with Ultraman toys, which makes it all the funnier, actually. So well, well, <laughs> there you go. You've got branding right there. Yeah. Now the like I said, as the name implies, this this is a very monster heavy episode, and uh, Red King has reappeared as recently as in uh, Ginga S in his upgraded form, which is called EX Red King, and Red King would appear later in this series, a second Red King, or depending on how you look at it, either is a second Red King or he survived this fight with Ultraman here. Uh, Shandora would reappear during the Ultra Galaxies, and Magular never made another appearance, but. Uh, you know, there's a lot of quadrupedal sort of monsters in Ultraman. You know, what's one more? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, I was going to say from the beginning of the show, it started since it started out with a giant monster fight, which, yes, you you think of if you think about uh, Japanese tokusatsu movies, you think of the Godzilla or the Gamera type movies. You think giant monster fight. That's going to be the majority of it. But these Ultraman shows have, have not necessarily been that. And when the first like five minutes of the show are our Red King and Chandora, and yeah. you know, you know, taking on each other. I thought this was just going to be a, a a big monster battle throughout this, and but it yeah. was actually a, a lot deeper than that. So I'm I'm glad that it you know satisfied not only you know the people who wanted to come to see the giant monster battles, but it also had some depth to it as well. Yeah, and the interesting thing about that fight is it's really violent and gory. Oh yeah, especially and, for '66. Yeah, and and not and on this show there hadn't been any monster blood in the Gamera series that Dai would start in '66 with Gamera and then move forward. Their color films always had a lot of monster gore because they aimed a little bit younger than the Toho films of the same era. Uh, we don't see Godzilla bleed until the '70s, whereas you know in '67 with Gamera versus Barugan, we see both of them bleed fairly profusely well and, and i i was kind of harking back you know you mentioned gamera i was harking back to the fight between gamera and uh or actually gauss and uh giran giran yes from yeah. uh, gamera versus giran because he does essentially the same thing with his knife blade attack and he cuts off uh gauss's arm yeah he, he chops up space gauss in a little bit yeah the he <laughs> decapitates him yeah and, yeah uh, yeah, puts him through the, the you know, you know, basically slices him up for meat. It's yeah, yeah. 
So it's very, very violent, and so it's, it really kind of it stands out as your first monster. And there, there's not a lot of instances of monster-on-monster monster fighting in the series. This one stands out. Uh, there's a later fight um, between it's the, the Battle of the Red and the Blue, years before Red versus Blue. We had uh, Aborus and Barilla, our two rival monsters that are both reawakened and just beat the living hell out of each other across most of Japan. Uh, but you know, so anytime monsters clash, it's usually violent like this, and I, it, 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 to me, kind of serves to highlight the difference between monsters fighting because of their monstrous nature and Ultraman, who's intelligent. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of a, you know, it's a build on when you would get an intelligent monster. I'm thinking like King Kong from King Kong versus Godzilla, or Frankenstein from Frankenstein conquers the world that you know fights with strategy and technique. Yeah. Whereas a monster mostly just fights because it's instinctual. Mm-hmm. And and it makes sense because these are two, you, you think, not brainless, but, you know, not as intelligent, not as crafty monsters. While Ultraman will, will take advantage of the situation and will uh, try and determine what the monster is going to do and try and counter that, you know, to make sure that he's able to win the fight. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not just going after it with brute force, which is what these two monsters at the beginning were doing. And it just, just so happened that Red King was... Uh, the more violent, the more aggressive monster. Yeah. This one is, uh, there's not a lot of connective tissue between these two episodes, but one thing that I noticed, this one also kind of reads like a Star Trek, the original series episode a little bit. If you take it in broad terms, investigating an observation station that they've lost contact with, they find a monster, a survivor, and then a strange looking ally who makes a sacrifice to save the team. Hmm. Again, could be a Star Trek episode, except the monsters are giant and everyone's wearing orange jumpsuits instead of space pajamas. Yeah, that's it's true. <laughs> well, I think that's a nice parallel again with Star Trek. You know, you've got the you've got the specific uniforms. Yes, they're all uh, with the Science Patrol. The uniforms are all very unified. The orange jumpsuits, again with the tie and the belt. I just <laughs> uh, as 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 silly as it looks. It's just fun. I yeah, love I love the look of it. It's so serious. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's and, so seriously costumed. And they and they take it and the thing is they don't play it up for camp. They do no. take it seriously. So I I I respect that uh, immensely. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fuji gets to come along this time but unfortunately is still fairly useless cuz she's a girl. Yeah, and that's kind of disappointing. At least in the last episode she had she was there to save the she was able to come and fly, I guess, the second BTOL out to save them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But here, yeah, it's basically she plays the uh, the poor helpless woman that gets you know trapped by the uh, the vines in the middle of the uh, in the middle of the jungle. And then, oh, I have to rest. Oh, we've been running too hard. Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> oh my womanly parts. I can't make it. Oh. <laughs> See, it's funny because Subaraya around this time did. Like I said he didn't treat Fuji particularly well. Um, the the female in Ultra Seven Anne gets treated somewhat better because she's not a, really a field agent, so she's she's a reason for her to stay at home base, you know. Okay. But I compare this fairly negatively when you look at like what was going on over at Toho, where um, you know Inoshira Honda in um, 1964 we had got our Mothra versus Godzilla, you know, aka Godzilla versus the Thing, and the the head female in that is this 
tough, uh, independent reporter girl who goes after the story and goes right after the, the evil businessman in it. And then we get a very similar character the same year in Gator, the three-headed monster. And, uh, you know, um, uh, and then the girl from Planet X in Monster Zero. So women were getting better roles in the films than they were on TV during this era. That is all I can say about yeah, that. Yeah, that's... <laughs> That's that's disappointing because you know it, of of the of the tokusatsu films. Now I've seen probably more from the modern era, but you know they tend to have very strong female roles in them, and it's it is kind of disappointing that Fuji is relegated to the the sort of sh- shrieking female <laughs> character, which is which is sad. She she does get her chance to shine later in the series. She gets a couple episodes. That's good. Which uh, which is which will be coming up. You know then. It's not that unusual for for Tokusatsu TV from a little after this for the girls to still be kind of useless, but it, you know, you you, you want better for Fuji, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, another thing I, I really liked about this episode is um, a little character beat for uh, the captain when they when they land, um, they or no when they avoid Red King, you know, Arashi and Ide want to go after him. And so we can go back and we can we can stop that monster. And the captain makes the point. He goes, no, the mission is to rescue any survivors, mm-hmm. not to fight monsters. Exactly. I mean, is it just do you think it's just the science patrol's desire or Ida and Rashi's desire to try and do something heroic or try and be heroic? You know, because, yeah, the the, the entire mission of them going there was to find this uh, this group of this group of scientists that have you know radioed in for help. You know why? Why the whole "let's go kill monsters" when that's not what you're supposed to be there for? Yeah, it's it. it you know, uh, we we see this kind of aggression out of Arashi later on in the series as well, uh, and and so it, it it's kind of just building his character. He's he's a fighter. You know, Arashi's not a science guy. His main trait is that he's a weapons expert. You know, him and his you know Arashi thinks he can take on any threat you know, with just himself and his spider shot gun you know mm-hmm. so it did this kind of aggressive uh, stance from arashi is not really surprising as we see as the show develops but i like the captain staying on point and you know it, it's one of the kind of ethical questions that eventually hayata will pose to himself and we get this in later ultra series too is is what i'm doing right by killing these monsters mm-hmm. you know there, there's a very famous quote from ishiro honda Again, the the director of uh, the original Godzilla and one of the kind of grandfathers of the uh, daikaiju genre that, you know, monsters are born too tall, too strong, too heavy, and that is their tragedy. You know, the most monsters, it's that they don't belong in the modern world. Not Red King is is an example of a monster that's just aggressive and and will, you know, just fight constantly. But not all monsters are bad. Some are just, they're out of place, Mm -hmm. you know. And so I, I like that the captain is is like, you know, we need to stay focused on what our actual mission is. Just because the show, in a meta sense, is about Ultraman fighting and killing monsters, their mission is to help people. Yes. You know, I've, I've got, I've got uh, two young boys at home, and they're really getting into superheroes. And I always try to explain to them, like, no, a hero is somebody who helps somebody. 
Mm-hmm. You know, he's not someone who beats up the bad guy. Why does why does Iron Man do this? Is it's it's not to fight the Titanium Man? It's to help the people that he would that would get hurt. Well, and and if we can tangent for just a minute, I think that's a perfect example. There, there's a perfect example of that in the first Iron Man movie, where uh, Iron Man comes to the town and there's the villagers being held captive by the various different members of I guess the Ten Rings Army or whatever you want to call it, and Iron Man. You know, uses Jarvis, the AI, to focus in on him, brings up the little missiles and takes out all the guys at once. Yes, that's a cool moment, but why is he doing that? He's doing that to rescue innocents. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what heroes are supposed to do. And so I, I agree. The part that the captain is keeping the team on point and making sure that they rescue these people, that, that that's their primary mission rather than going out and trying to blow up giant monsters. Yeah, as cool as that is. Oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and and we see this, like I said, we see this quandary with with uh, the various ultra heroes over the year of asking asking the question of this. In fact, in the um, in, in in Ultraman Ginga, that Ginga was a segment of a show called New Ultraman Anthology, and there were certain episodes that actually were the ongoing story of Ginga, and then there were some where Ginga's mentor, who was Ultraman Taro, would explain the history of the Ultramans to the host for Ultraman Ginga. And in one of those episodes, um, the host whose name is, uh, whose name is Hikari. He's, I mean, he's a, he's like a teenager. He's like 19. He's like the youngest host ever to an ultra hero. And he asked that question. He goes, is that all we, is that all as ultras we do is kill monsters. And Taro tells him that no, we we're defending human life anywhere in the galaxy. Mm -hmm. And if it comes to that, that's what we do. But that's not the first solution. And and Ginga himself actually has an attack called uh, a final attack called Ginga Comfort, where it's it it's it disables the monster, but it doesn't kill them hmm. It because uh, in, in the episode where he uses the Ginga Comfort attack, it's uh, Ragon and Ragon's kind of going crazy. And so the comfort just calms Ragon down and he settles down because he, you know, he's again something. It's it's the music that's driving him mad. So it's not that he is an you know being aggressive. He's being driven that way, mm-hmm. and you know. So it's it's you know it's again for a series that ultimately is about uh, a giant guy fighting a giant monster. More food for thought, like you had said in the previous episode. Yeah, and and like I said, that's that's the that, that's a sign of a good science fiction show that it can entertain and you know entertain that sort of childlike nature that you want to see giant robots or giant monster fights and all that but also as an adult give you something to think about uh one of the things i noticed about this was this is one of the first shows that i remember where there was no problem with ultraman having the fight go too long i don't even think that his uh you know that his that his timer even went off during this one if i know I don't believe it does, and it's it's interesting again that the fight with Red King is is different than the fights we've gotten so far for the most part. Um, other than the fight with Bolton, which was an aerial kind of dogfight, uh, most of the fights have been you know kind of grapple, kick, throw, specium beam. You know, yes. uh, here, uh, I mean, at one point Ultraman pounds his chest to show how tough he is, mm-hmm. and then he shoots the the boulder out of Red King's foot and it fall, or in his hand and it falls on his foot, which is, it's even funnier the second time because he drops a boulder on his foot twice because <laughs> he's got such a tiny head. 
You know, you know, he can't be smart. Yeah. Well, if you look at the design of him, he's obviously his design is very much like the classic Godzilla, but he does have that very his neck goes up much higher and his head is it. it if you can imagine if Godzilla got sort of the shrunken head syndrome from Beetlejuice, <laughs> that's what this character looks like. If you yeah. haven't seen the show. So there you go. Red, Red King in a lot of ways is what we call a Puruessa heel. OK, Puruessa is uh, as the as the romanization suggests the japanese term for pro wrestling puru ressa <laughs> pro wrestle so he acts like a heel but a japanese heel so that's why he's a braggart and he's a bully because that's what the, typically what a heel is in puru ressa whereas ultraman acts like a, a face a puru face pounding his chest to show how tough he is to show his fighting spirit because that, you know, faces, it's not like here where it's flamboyant and showing off for the crowd, you know, and, and pro wrestling in Japan is is very stoic, what we call the stoic style or the King's Road style of wrestling. I mean, later on at one, another Red King appearance, he actually puts another monster essentially in a Boston crab for crying out <laughs> loud. So he's pulling on his tail instead of his legs, but he's got him in a Boston crab. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> so it's, it's very much like a Puro Wessa fight, and he even wins it with a wrestling throw. Yes. He suplexes him, and that, that's what beats him. So mm -hmm. that was a nice little nod <laughs> to the golden age of uh, Puroessa there. I always like that. But it suits the character. It suits the, the big bully monster like Pigmon to be that. You know, he doesn't, he's, a, he's a tooth and claw fighter. He doesn't have any beams or any uh, you know, long-range weapons. So it's got to be an all-out grapple fest yeah. you know, with him and, and Ultraman. Um, it's, so it's, yeah, I, I like Red King. He, he's a he's a threat, but he's funny at the same time. Yes, you know, because <laughs> you can't take him too seriously when he drops a boulder on his foot. It's <laughs> like if Curly, you know, Curly Howard was a was a, a monster. Oh, if we only if we only had a moment where Red King was you know rubbing his hands on his head, <laughs> sort of. The... <laughs> Now I'm picturing running around in a circle on the ground as well. And... Oh, yes. Spinning around doing the sort of curly shuffle break dance. Yes. No, that'd be awesome. Oh, man. Um, the other monster, the other two giant monsters we get. Shandora doesn't really get much of a chance to shine. I, he's got an interesting design, but I, I, I'm always, I always question monsters with wings that don't fly. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like they couldn't. He's just a suit. They didn't have a puppet for him to fly with. And uh, Shandora actually, he doesn't, he makes a, uh, he comes back in the first Ultra Galaxy series and he's a really, really tough monster. But they, the way that they kind of sell it in that series is, hey, this is a monster that Ultraman never beat because he never fought him, but still a monster that Ultraman never beat. Yeah, but that doesn't, that kind of belies the fact that he was <laughs> taken down pretty handily by Redman. So, by Red, Red King, King yeah. sorry, yeah. Redman, yeah. So it's, uh, but I mean, I, again, I like the, the kind of saber tooth, snaggle tooth look he's got going on. Mm -hmm. You know, it's an interesting design, but ultimately doesn't have much to do. And uh, and I think the same can kind of be said for Magular. Yeah, he. The, aside from Red King, you know, the two monsters, the other two monsters here were, were, were interesting general designs but they yeah they didn't really have much to do or much to they were there to be little hindrances to the science patrol and to red king basically yeah, what, what's interesting is that about magular mostly is that this is the second use or uh dressing you know a redressing of the baragon suit in this series uh the first was naranga and then we get magular and pretty much any time i think kemular also reused the baragon suit anytime you had a quadruped generally it was the suit from baragon 
that was re, you know put a new head on it and repaint it uh, to the point where Baragon was supposed to appear in a lot of movies during this era, but mm-hmm. didn't because the suit was always in use over at the Ultra Studio. <laughs> I mean, Baragon was supposed to be in Destroy All Monsters. In fact, I mean, they wrote it that way. They even the script even still says it. But then, you know, suddenly Gorosaurus knows how to burrow and digs out from underneath the uh, Arc de Triomphe in Paris instead of Baragon. Uh. They didn't have a lot of quadrupedal suits, and Baragon didn't have the big row of spikes on his back like Anguirus, so... <laughs> yeah, well, I guess you gotta you gotta go with what you have, so... Well, you know, the statement is that a lot of these suits were, you know, they just put a new head on them and spray paint them. And uh, one of the... I forget which actor it was. One of the suit actors said, sometimes the staggering gait of some of these monsters was not an acting job. That was the fumes from the spray paint being stuck inside the suit. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, I can't imagine some of those guys, you know, not only not only being in the suits, which has got to be uncomfortable and warm, but underneath the lights of the, you know, uh, you know, the lighting of there, it's got to be you, you've got to be just an impressive person to be able to pull off these uh, suitmation type stuff. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, let's see. Looking at my notes uh, again, food for thought, Matsui's statement of God made a good monster to help me which I thought was was nice, and again, more with Christian imagery, mm-hmm. of, you know, saying that God sent them. And then the funeral, a very kind of Christian funeral at the end as well. Yeah, you uh, see the you see the three, you, you see the scientist and, and Pigmon buried with, uh, you know, a sort of, you know, made crosses as well, which was, uh, which was interesting for the time. So, uh, yeah, the, the fact that there is some religious imagery in this sci-fi show about giant monsters is, is again, showing that it's not just a, a big, you know, monster mashup. Yeah. And, and I like the, you know, uh, again, them, them showing respect for the dead, you know, and, and not just forgetting about them because we don't ever, we don't see any of the other scientists other than Matsui, mm-hmm. but we're not, but there, there's still respect paid for them and respect paid for Pigmon as well, which I, it's, it's, it's a nice touch. And, um, there, there's, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you, if, if it had been left out, I wouldn't have been terribly surprised by it given the, you know, being made in 1966 and being ostensibly a kid's show, but putting it in there, it, to me, just adds a lot to it. You know, oh, it, it really, it feels like a real ending. Yeah, and it, it, it definitely gives it some resonance. I mean, you see people, in, in other shows, you see people die all the time. I mean, Star Trek, you know, going back in there, again, to Star Trek, there's a lot of times people die and you don't see the consequences of that. They just move on to the next show. At least at this, even though we didn't see the characters die, we have knowledge that they did pass away and they're showing some sort of respect at the end of the show for for their passing. So that's that's a credit, again, a credit to the show being more than just a giant monster smash em up. I like this one a lot. It's just a lot of fun as an episode. You know, just um, uh, I, I love anytime we go to some crazy South Seas island and there's killer vines. Uh, <laughs> it worked in Mothra and it works here. So help me God, you know, to have Sunflan. And I love that for some now the spider shot because we need it to can also be like a heat gun. Yeah, it's like a giant hair dryer <laughs> or a mini flamethrower almost. Yeah. So, yeah. And it also the right before that, they does include one of my favorite Daikaiju shorthand bits when the compasses go crazy. That means that there's that there's something really with really bad magnetic waves somewhere in the area. 
Again, it worked in Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, and it works here, too. Well, and it's a, it's a simple effect. Uh, you know, <laughs> you, the, the compass spinning round and round like that. I'm certain it's a simple effect to do, but yeah, it does definitely show that there's something going on that's outside the norm. So, yeah, it's good. <laughs> yeah, just, I said it's just a, a solid episode with a lot of a, a lot of monsters, a lot of fun. I really enjoyed watching this and both of them, frankly. I really enjoyed watching both the episodes for this. Uh, for the show here tonight and you know it's it's uh it's been about a no maybe two years or so since i've watched all these episodes but you forget some of the little subtle things about them and it's been a lot of fun to revisit them and and you know like you said the the little details that show why this is a show that has uh, lasted over time and, and was able to launch and start a franchise oh yes definitely so any any final thoughts on the lawless monster zone? Uh, it was a good it was a good monster fight. It had a bit more meat on it as well. These shows aren't, you know, these shows are made to be fun, but there's also you know some thought put into them. So another good episode, really good. Agreed. A lot of this is you can't go wrong with this one. You can find this one on Hulu if you want to check it out. If you want to see, you know, Red King just go to town on Shandora. You know, um, and uh, and again, also available on the Ultraman Complete Series DVD from Mill Creek. Definitely check this one out. It's a lot of fun. And you get to meet Red King, who mm-hmm. comes back over and over and over and uh, and his tiny head <laughs> to the point that in the Ultraman video game for the Nintendo systems, he does his only weapon that he does is he has a boulder <laughs> that just appear, appears in his hand over and over and he throws it. So, Does he ever drop it on his foot? I've never. And the Game Boy one, you can't. I don't know if you can the Super Nintendo one. I need <laughs> that would be awesome. If you shoot him with a specium ray and he, he drops it on his foot. Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Imagine you enter the world of the Shogun Warriors. They're on the move. There's Raideen with Delta Wing missiles, Dragoon with a star shooter, and Mazinga with a rocket launcher. The Shogun! Imagine you command them to defend freedom, protect justice, and challenge evil. The Shoguns! They're ready to strike when you are. Shogun warriors, Mazinga, Dragoon, Raideen, equipped with their own gear, each sold separately from Mattel. And we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And now we're going to take a look at a special treat, Shogun Warriors number 13. I know you must be excited, Sean, because I am excited. I love reading my Shogun Warriors comics every month here. Oh, yeah. I'm looking, I'm actually looking forward to this. You know, I remember the Shogun Warrior toys as a kid. I remember the giant uh, Raiden. And uh, this was, you know, not to, not to spoil ahead, but I really enjoyed this. So let's hit this. All right, Shogun Warriors number 13 is cover dated February of 1980 and released November 6, 1979 with hat tip to Mike's Amazing World of Comics at dcindexes.com for that information. Our writer is Doug Mench, our penciler Herb Trimpey. Inker is Mike Esposito. Letterer is John Costanza. Colorist Bob Sharon. Editor is Alan Milgram. And the editor-in-chief, Jim Shooter. And our title is The Demonicus Scheme. On the moon, Dangard Ace is staked down to the lunar surface by the goons of Dr. Demonicus. And Dangard's pilot, Elongo Savage, can do nothing but wait as the mighty Shogun is lifted and moved onto Demonicus's massive space station. Meanwhile, at the Shogun Sanctuary, Dr. Tambura contacts Richard Carson and Genji Odashu, who are tumbling off into deep space, unable to stop their momentum with their retro rockets on Raideen and Kambatra. 
Kambura directs them to save their energy until they fly into a nearby asteroid shower and use the relative inertia of the asteroids to slow their movement and turn around. The Shoguns do as directed, and they jet back towards the moon to save their captured compatriot. Back on Demonicus' station, Savage makes a play for freedom. First, he detonates one of Dangard Ace's power packs, making it look like the Shogun is completely disabled. But once the Shogun is released from the magnetic crane which was lifting him, he attacks with all of his reserves, sending Demonicus's men scattering. But the masked madman has other ideas and taunts Savage from a giant video screen. He reveals that his plan was to use the meteor from the previous issue to lure the Shoguns there, then strike the Earth with a second meteor as the forerunner in his bid to conquer the entire planet. Unbeknownst to Demonicus, Savage has been relaying his monologuing to the Shogun Sanctuary, and Charn hacks into a, quote, secret intelligence agency in North America, unquote, to get the skinny on Demonicus. A scientist who was scarred and discredited, he created four giant monsters and an army of so-called demon men before being stopped by an agent of the unnamed intelligence agency. The followers speculate that given that Demonicus uses cosmic energy to make his monsters, he is in space to do just that. Dr. Demonicus then takes the opportunity to fill in the rest of the blanks, telling Savage that he will use his own monstrous creations along with the three Shogun warriors to invade Earth and install himself as its leader. But a shouted alert from one of Demonicus's flunkies alerts Savage that Carson and Genji are close to the station, and Demonicus intends to blast them into the lunar surface so they too can be captured. Savage wastes no time as Dangard Ace tears through the hull and climbs on top of the space station, then manages to divert the laser weapon, allowing Raiden and Kambatra to land safely. Stalking back inside, the Shoguns begin to tear through the station, but are waylaid by a quartet of Demonicus's monsters, strange mutated things vaguely resembling dinosaurs. The Shoguns are outnumbered, but outclass their opponents and through their superior teamwork and training are able to overcome the beasts. They continue moving forward, walking right through a force field screen and tearing into a secured room. Staring back at them are the bad doctor's latest creations. Cerberus, the Star Child, and the Hand of Five. Next issue, the epic conclusion, should heroes fail. <laughs> so what do you think of this, Sean? Oh, holy cow. Yeah, I, I can, this isn't, this isn't some some comic that needs to be transformed into a multi-million dollar movie made by Michael Bay or anything. This is just, this is just all and all out fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, the artwork, the artwork is typical for about this time. It's nothing fantastic, but it's definitely not that bad. You know, if I were doing, if I were doing, uh, back to the bins here i'd probably give it a, an average grade of about a c or a c plus but i think the story and the overall fun of it you know brings up the overall grade to a good b i would think mm-hmm. i really enjoyed the heck out of it i, I have really enjoyed herb trimpy's art on this book um I, I said last month that you know we think of herb trimpy in the 70s at least i do as the incredible hulk mm-hmm. and and really what is the incredible hulk except one monster fighting another monster or perhaps a robot Yes. So, in in a sense, Trimpy's the perfect artist for Shogun Warriors because it's robots fighting monsters pretty much every month. Yeah. And and so until he brings a very 
you know, I, I think he works well doing the monster designs and the robots and the technology and the sci-fi aspects. So I think I, I like Trimpy's art on this. But again, I, I mean, I'd probably rate it a little bit higher just because I'm a fan. But just a, a really, really fun comic. And I know that's my refrain every month with these, but they're, they are. They're just yeah. a blast to read. Yeah, <laughs> um, I I agree with you. The technology, I think Trimpy does a really great job with that. Do you, do you want to go page per page through this, or how do yeah, you? Yeah, I got this? I've got a, a few notes here. Let's take a look at the cover. We get up close and personal with Dangard Ace. Mm-hmm. That's that's really good. He's got Kirby hands. I'll give him mm-hmm. that. He's got the big squared fingers, but that's typical of the month. I, I will say the fact that all the henchmen are just colored red here, that would be kind of negative. But the fact that Dangard Ace is being you know, tied down all Gulliver style on the moon. It's just a really nice image. And, you know, like I said, the only negative thing is the simple coloring of the of the bad guys on there. But other than that, it's a nice dynamic cover. Yeah, the coloring is my one real negative on the art. Bob Sharon does the coloring. And uh, I've been raving kind of about the work of Carl Gafford on the coloring on this series. And the coloring, it's not that it's bad. It's just, it's not... Gafford always seemed to add one or two more shades to really make stuff look dynamic. Whereas uh, Sharon, I think, does a more kind of what we'd expect from Marvel in this time, 1979, 80, 81. You know, that it, this book doesn't look as different from a color standpoint as some of the previous issues did. Yeah, I and, think and that. And that's a good example on the cover. Yeah, I think if, if there was a bit more shading to the to the astronauts or whatever the bad guys in there it'd look a lot better but them just being this one statted red color mm-hmm. even even to the fact their their visors on their helmets being the same right. color just it, it kind of diminishes it yeah and, and I, I do like that trimpy again something we've seen many times in this series is he'll put figures on the cover to show the scale of the shoguns mm-hmm. and we get that here but now the figures are a little bit larger because we're tighter in than we've been on any of the previous covers. Yeah. Most of it, because we only get to see half of Dan Gardais, whereas normally we'd see a full body shot, and so they'd be tiny little people. Here, they, they stay to scale, but it still sells the uh, the proportion. Uh, the cover copy really makes me laugh, because demons on the moon, all I can think is whalers of the moon. <laughs> We're demons on the moon, and we carry a harpoon. But there ain't uh, no whales, yes, so we, we tell, tell, tell tales. We're demons on the moon. <laughs> Uh, we got a Futurama reference in. Cool. I'm always <laughs> glad when we can do that. Yeah. Um, page one, I, again, with the with the perspective, that's really good. And here I think the artwork gets significantly better. The uh, the designs in the, in the lower right-hand corner of the two, uh, the two uh, people in the spacesuits, those designs yeah. are really good. And they have, you know, I know this is a probably right around the time you said it was 79 when this came out Seven, yeah right at the end of 1970 so we're we're right in the era of alien and the cost the the uniforms the spacesuits that they have here have the very alien design there's a yeah, lot of good line work in there yeah very utilitarian as well mm-hmm. this is probably the least action we've seen on a splash page in the series but i really like the the kind of uh the depth of field so to speak like you say we've got the two figures right in the foreground and then in the mid-ground, we have Dangard and the other figures uh, approaching him. Then we've got um, the you know, behind him, in the still in the midfield, we've got the uh, the shuttle that's coming to lift him up. And then in the background, we have Earth. Mm-hmm. So I, I really like this. It's a, it's, I, to me, this is a real nice, just a tableau, a setting up of the stage that we're on here. Yeah, it's not yeah. it's not action heavy, but it does have, like you said, a good depth of field, and it shows it shows the the enormity of this character and where where the setting is so yeah. that's good. and 
and Munch directly references Gulliver in the in the caption. He says, on the surface of the moon, a lift craft descends toward a helpless Shogun warrior and his bizarre Lilliputian captors. Mm-hmm. It's like, yes, well, and three we, worlds of Gulliver, baby. And, you know, you say you say that uh, Trimpy did a great job with scale here. As you look, there is the little tiny, uh, little tiny spacemen, you know, right near yeah. uh, Dengar Dace's head that are tying him down. And the, he gets the perspective right. So you can tell how enormous the Shogun is. So it's cool. Uh, my next note is on uh, page three. Okay. Uh, page three, panel five, where we see um, now somehow the Shogun Sanctuary has a camera in deep space to see this, uh, but the Shoguns are flying through space. Now that is Saturn. Yeah. The... How fast are they f- being knocked back through space? Obviously, that they're at Saturn. Obviously, already. obviously pretty fast. And that was one of the that was another one of the things that that kind of confused me because later on in the book you'll see that they use an asteroid belt to slow their you know to, to slow them down some and you know as far as i know unless there's you know just asteroids you know perhaps they were flying through the rings of saturn and they used the sort of yeah you know stuff there to slow them down but the asteroid belt that i think most people know about is in between earth and mars and if that were the case that wouldn't put them too far away from the earth but still you know even traveling you know even spaceships traveling now it takes what 90 days to get to from earth to mars you know yeah. so yeah i i like i i like your idea that 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 it's actually it's not the asteroid belt it's, it's the the rings of saturn it's a particulate matter in that just because that's cool mm-hmm. <laughs> and if it's cool it outrules everything i've been yes. saying that for years you know i'm, I'm sticking with it yeah cool uh, and comics works a lot better yeah. Um, my next date's over on uh, page six. Okay, I had one on page five. The okay. whole the whole idea of them firing the retro rockets against the uh, asteroids or the particular matter in the rings of Saturn, as you said, I don't know how that works, but I'm just going <laughs> to chalk it up to comic physics and being cool and leave it at that because I'm willing to do that. Yeah, Munch makes a point in the previous issue when they're blasted back that because they have nothing to push against – because, as we know, space is very, very empty. Yes. That they have nothing to push against. They can't overcome their inertia. So here it, it works in a pseudo-scientific way that they have something to push. Their their rocket has a, for, uh, can, has, has a force can act against something to slow their own uh, inertia, to slow their momentum, excuse me, and overcome their inertia. So, it, again, I don't think it would hold up in a, in a court of scientific law. But for a book about giant robots, I'm willing to buy it. Yeah, again, <laughs> again, I will, I will put my uh, stamp on it and say it, it's comics. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, and, you know, on to page two, uh, excuse me, uh, page six, panel two, Trimpy with the scale once again, because this is where we see the the lifter craft is carrying Dengard Ace into the shuttle, and so the little tow craft dwarves Dengard Ace, and then the space station dwarves that lifter craft mm-hmm. you know we don't, it, it's a small panel we don't get to see just a little bit it looks like almost like the surface of the death star a little bit at how vast that we can picture this space station to be yeah and i like the fact that they that he keeps that scale throughout the book there are there are portions that we'll see later in the book that all of the uh all the shogun warriors are essentially walking upright throughout the halls of the station so that just shows the immensity of it i like that yeah, and then a little bit down the page, uh, panel five, when Dangard Ace goes limp, 
Uh, a lot of times in the series, when we've seen them, they look like Dengard Ace does here, where they're just like rigid, you know? Mm-hmm. So actually seeing him limp is very, very unique and very interesting looking from this, from this perspective, see him hanging like that, you know? Well, and I think that uh, doesn't that also sort of belie the design of the, the Shogun toys? Mm-hmm. They were very, they didn't really have that many points of articulation. They basically had the shoulders moved and the, the legs were pretty stationary. I don't even yeah. think at times that the knee joints moved. No, the the, the big 24-inch um, jumbo machinder, as they were called in Japan, the yes. big Shogun warriors that most people remember, right. They only moved at the shoulders and they had little wheels in their feet. Uh, th- mm-hmm. There's been times in this book where it was almost clear to me that um, that Trimpy probably had the toys on his desk as reference because they're just, you know, the arms just, you know, rail straight and the legs just rail straight. So uh, it, yeah, the the uh, the smaller Shoguns had a little bit more articulation, but still probably not enough to pull off this pose that Dangard Ace has. On yeah, but, but that is that is a cool transition to show that something's gone wrong or that he's lost power because in that panel right before it, he's in that very rigid, you know, flat position. So yes, yeah. good artwork here. A, a little funny thing on the next panel, um, the the second guy in from the left is throwing his hands up like he stubbed his toe on Dengard's foot. It's like, oh, son of a fat! What is this thing made of? Jeez! <laughs> oh, it's all good. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have notes until page 10. Uh, my next one is on page 7. This okay. page made me think of you just because all the onomatopoeia from the sound effects. Oh, yes. We get a click, a tech, a check, a choom, and a thoom. <laughs> And oh, I know yeah. on, on just one of the guys, you're always uh, always a fan when we get creative onomatopoeia and sound effects. Oh yes. And uh, this, go ahead. No, I, I was going to say it's just it's just a fun panel watching Dengar Ace power up and take these guys out. And again, the scale of him, you know, or the, or you know, of the uh, team looking at through, you know, looking at the visor, seeing what Dengar's looking at is always great. Oh yeah, this it's I said this. Lots of opportunities in this series for good sound effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, uh, page ten. Yeah, page ten. I'm I'm really down with the fact that Doctor Demonicus has a bitchin' giant <laughs> HD screen TV. You know, and it also makes me think that you know, if this guy can afford technology in the 1970s to build this kind of giant HD screen TV, again, why doesn't he just market that? <laughs> and sell that to the people and make millions that way. You could yeah. rule the planet that way, but yeah, I guess villainy. Why not? I think he went to Silver Age bad guy school. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got the big view screen, nonstop monologuing. His goal is—I mean, his actual goal is world domination. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, I mean, we're not talking—you know—you know—we're not talking the most you know, well thought out villain. He's, he's a very, he's, I'm not saying he's a crab villain, but he's very much of, you know, he's very much of the stereotypical villain ilk, but he's, again, you take it in context, you take it as fun and you just, you just go with it. Oh yeah. I mean, Demonicus, I love him. And when he showed up last issue, I was like, Oh, that's right. I knew he showed up elsewhere after Godzilla, but, but before tangling with the, uh, the Avengers, but I didn't know it was here. So that was, I mean, and look, I mean, he's got a great kind of Silver Age look. I said last time, I think him and the Dread Knight shop at the, have the same tailor. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, the the purple and all that. And the yeah. White fit. yeah, it's 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 something. Um, <laughs> what's your next note? I've got one on 15. Uh, page 11. Mm-hmm. This whole thing here where Charn, he refers 
uh, to S.H.I.E.L.D. as well as the events of the Marvel Godzilla series. Now, that that's what he's talking about with, uh, you know, demonic, you know, where this is what I got from a secret intelligence organization in North America and a, uh, a daring agent of that uh, of that a- of that uh, agency, you know. OK. Now, the I can understand why he can't talk about the Godzilla stuff, because, you know, Marvel had licensed Godzilla for a year and then they rene- renewed the license for a second year. But by this point, the Godzilla comic had ended. I'm almost certain. Because there was a period when Godzilla was being published at the same time as Shogun Warriors. But I think by this point, Godzilla had ended. So I can understand why they don't want to talk about that. But why can't they say S.H.I.E.L.D.? Hmm. You know, that that's it's almost to me like we they, they could, you know, because Mensch wrote the Godzilla series. So obviously he knows this stuff. This I mean, it's he's bringing in Demonicus uh, clearly because it's, it's, you know, one of his guys and it fits for the story. But it seems to me that, you know, this book has not had. Um, it has not specifically referenced the Marvel Universe, but by Dr. Demonicus showing up, it does because Godzilla took place in the Marvel Universe. I mean, S.H.I.E.L.D. was there, the champions were there. So Demonicus was clearly in the Marvel Universe. So this ties it to the Marvel Universe. So I'm really just, my, my you know, the fanboy brain in me is concocting all these wild scenarios why Mench can't say S.H.I.E.L.D. Hmm. Uh, maybe it's because that you know, since S.H.I.E.L.D. specifically dealt with Godzilla, that, and Godzilla may have not, you know, I know you mentioned many times before that Toho was uh, kind of reluctant to let uh, Godzilla go out to anyone other than the people using their, uh, that had the license for it, that they might not have been able to mention S.H.I.E.L.D. going up against Godzilla. I don't know. Yeah. It's, like I said, it's, it's, it's odd because then again, they, they mention his four monsters, you know, Batragon, Leperax, Centipore, and Gileron, which are the monsters he creates in the Marvel Godzilla book. So it just odd, you know, because it's, I, I, I think about, um, Hero for Hire when Luke Cage got his own book. Mm-hmm. It was six months before, uh, it, even though he, the series was set in the in the middle of New York in the Marvel Universe, it was almost a, it was half a year before Cage interacted with the Marvel Universe at large. In the story with him and Doctor Doom, where he steals the Fantastic Car to go get two hundred dollars from Doctor mm. Doom in Latveria. Before that, Doom or it have to be Doom. Cage had played in his own little playground, so to speak. And I've always taken that to be that Marvel was kind of testing the waters with him before they let him, you know, into the larger Marvel Universe. Whereas here, I mean, by having Demonicus show up, clearly this is in the Marvel universe. So it's, I don't, I don't know. Was was there a concern that hey, people reading Shogun Warriors don't know who Shield is because they don't read other Marvel comics? Are Shogun Warriors readers younger and maybe not into superhero comics? Like maybe people you know, two, three years older than them. So I'm, I'm just, if I, you know, if I ever meet Doug Mensch, I'm going to waste his time by asking him this question. <laughs> I don't think it's a waste of time. I'm certain. I'm certain Doug Mensch, who's done a ton of writing, would be really interested to get one of these little, you know, some of these niche questions that he doesn't get asked ever, you know, very often. So I think that'd be a cool thing to ask. Oh, I, if I ever, if I ever get to, if I ever get to go to a show with Doug Mensch, I'm bringing my, uh, you know, my Shogun Warriors number one, and probably my Essential Godzilla. You know, for him to mm-hmm. sign, or maybe God, I, I do a copy of Godzilla number two where he's eating the Space Needle. Yeah. So and, and that you know uh, that got me in trouble when I covered that on Back to the Bins. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but okay. So uh, all right. So turning over then to page fifteen. Yeah, I had page fifteen. Um, 
Yeah, this this is a very stereotypical version of the villain monologuing. And I, lo- I love the fact that, you know, while he's doing all this monologuing and telling everyone what's going on, you know, his little henchman comes in and disrupts everything. I think that's just – the idea of monologuing I think was kind of set forth, you know, in the Brad Bird Incredibles. But mm-hmm. it, it's it, it's right. Villains at this point in time, Silver Age and sometimes even to the Bronze Age villains, would just spell out their plan for the hero without regard of anything going on. And, and I like that he kind of gets called out on it. So yeah. this is fun. I've always loved that that phrase caught on immediately. Mm-hmm. Upon release of The Incredibles, we all were spent like, why didn't I think to call it that? That's exactly what he's doing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, you know, you caught me monologuing because they... <laughs> That's, you know, it, it makes no sense. James Bond villains do that. Yeah. Here's what I'm going to do. And it became, it, you know, it moved on into Austin Powers where it became a joke, where it became, I'm going to lay this elaborate trap, which will be have an easily escapable thing, and then I'm going to walk away. And, and the reasonable thing is, well, why don't you just go shoot him? <laughs> I mean, Alan Moore even made fun of that in Watchmen. Oh, yes. Yes, it's yes, like, yes. Do it. I'm not some Republic serial villain. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the, yeah the monologuing in this is is epic, it's epic yes, monologue, it and I, I like his little henchman, uh, has the fur collar kind of like Baron Zemo. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, again, all these guys have the same tailor, much like all the Flash rogues use the same tailor. Nice, so, you know, good, you know, uh, you know, want to have some real world continuity. Obviously, there's somebody out there making these supervillain costumes. He needs oh, yeah. to feed his family too. Well, exactly, and maybe you know, maybe there is just a maybe there is a design firm that makes these and you know mass produces them. It wouldn't be you know, the henchmen have got to have uniforms to have a unified you know. If you're gonna if you're gonna take on the planet and try and overthrow it, it's nice to have a unified unified look. So I'm certain there are tailors out there who make costumes like this for their supervillain characters. Yeah, they're doing amazing things with jumpsuits nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, my next note is uh, pages 18 and 19. Okay. I just really like this sequence of Dan Gardace blasting through the hall with the Shrat and then literally dashing across the surface of the space station to divert the laser. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's got some great dynamic shots here. And then, you know, you know, Dangar just running across the top of the space station that uh, I'm looking at panel two on page 19. That's just a really great shot. Yeah. However, however, the next panel um panel three there you cut that off from the uh bottom half down and you've got a kind of uncomfortable looking panel yeah it's it's like with uh on mystery science theater the movie should we Mm -hmm. be seeing this yes yeah (laughs) yeah out of out of context uh you taken out of context that could look uh, a bit uncomfortable like dangard ace is uh firing off his laser if you know what i mean Trimpy just has great storytelling here, you know, mm-hmm. of, of him tearing through and running. And again, considering the scale, the size of Dangard Ace, and this is a, uh, you know, the, the surface of this craft is so large, he's running across it. It's just really well conveyed. Yeah, and he gets, you know, he's able to, to make Dangard Ace, like we said, this character that is usually very stiff and stoic, have a lot of dynamism in him mm-hmm. as, he, as he's running across the surface of this. So it's really great. Yeah, my, my only, again, and, and panel four on page 19 where he actually diverts the laser, uh, that I, I think it looks good. But again, this is the kind of page where, or the kind of panel, I should say, where Carl Gafford previously had, he would add like a shade of orange and more black and really bring out, you know, the, the uh, explosion of color. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas this looks good, but to me, this is more kind of a standard type of look from Marvel from this era, this type of coloring in that panel. Yeah. It's, it's, again, it's not that it's bad. I just think that Gafford was being a little more creative with it. Yeah, I think, and I think, you know, looking at the panel before of it, before it, panel three, how dynamic that looks. And with the, you, you know, you're seeing the lasers shoot off in the color. I think the coloring distinction between these two panels definitely does make that fourth one looked somewhat diminished yeah i mean and, and gafford's work was to me was always because he did a lot of things like this with, with beam weapons firing and it just always it just always popped out you know and this this looks good but it doesn't have the same pop you mm-hmm. know uh, my next note is on uh, page 22 yep and the uh monster dinosaur dinosaur things um, these look like something that the Mad Thinker would have put against the Fantastic Four, doesn't it? Mm-hmm, it if they were does. androids, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, I could imagine that. It's a it's a unique design. They've got sort of the heads of, uh, you know, they're very reptilian, but they also have tentacled arms, and then they've got arms with like the giant Rock'em Sock'em, or not Rock'em Sock'em, but the Bop'em gloves. On yes. Them. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's a unique design, but it's, it's great to see these giant robots just taking out, you know, big old funky looking lizards. Oh yeah. And I, I love the big doors big enough for them to walk through. Yep. Like I said, the, that they, <laughs> that the space station is designed, looks like it might've been designed specifically to have giant, uh, you know, Japanese robots walking through them. So that's cool. And, and you can kind of hand wave this one, too, because this station was built by Demonicus to grow monsters. Mm-hmm. So ostensibly, the monsters have to be able to move from room to room inside the station. So you'd need big doors, right? Yep. It's like on Skull Island in King Kong. Everyone always says, well, why didn't they just build a wall with a little door on Skull Island? And it's like, well, if Kong gets out, they got to put him back in, mm-hmm. you know, so you need a big door. <laughs> See, I sense. used to be one of those wall with small door guys until I I had that thought. It's like, what if Khan got out? They'd have to put him back. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't want to tear the wall down. <laughs> but anyway, Makes sense. Uh, th- this fight sequence that goes from twenty three and pages twenty three and twenty six, just more just Trimpy getting to show off. I think a little bit here. Oh yeah, and, and lots of great sound effects as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looking at that second panel on twenty six of. Uh, that, that's Dangard again, you know, just kicking the crap yeah. out of those monsters. <laughs> and just a simple wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the panel before that, again, taken out of context, could be a little weird. Uh, yeah, where is he shooting from exactly? Uh, Especially since it's the it's also the female pilot he's shooting with the, the stuff there. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, yeah, the best, <laughs> the, the less, less said, said about, about that. that is better. I do have to love on page 23, uh, Richard Carson, he's a stuntman. He's not a scientist. He's not, no, exceptionally intelligent. He gets shot by a beam from one of the monsters and yells, "Ah, oh, radioactive fire!" <laughs> it's like, no, that's just actual fire, Richard. It's okay. <laughs> I know you drive a motorcycle for money. It's okay. <laughs> it's like this well, isn't this isn't paper. It's made of metal. No, Hal, that's paper. <laughs> Again, Mystery Science Theater. Yeah. We're having a great time here. Uh, um, next, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I say my next note's on uh, page 27. Mm-hmm. Uh, panel four there, the Shogun Warriors as a disco act. <laughs> yeah. <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. Well, they've got their hands up like they're. Yeah. It's like Dangard's going, Fame! I'm going to live forever. 
Well, I already Nate. know how to fly with my boot jets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Yeah, it's again, it's one of the things where they, he's sort of the, the only thing I would say limiting it is the fact that the coloring is just the simple red again, giving yeah. a little bit of uh, shading between the coloring that could have made it even more dynamic. But yeah, the the Shogun's doing their uh, their patented 70s disco moves is always nice to see. <laughs> and, and I love that they have this force field apparently just to like kill half a page mm-hmm. because Demonicus even says, I doubt it will stop him. And then he, they walk right through. Yeah. It. So. <laughs> well, aside from the little lightning bolts and them doing this sort of uh, YMCA here, it's not really all that much of a hindrance to them. So, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, of course the, the final page, page 30. Oh God. Oh, wow. This is amazing. My note is hot damn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my note was shit just got real. Shit just got real. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the design of all these things is just, it's bat guano insane. But I, uh, the fact that these guys are going to have to take the, you know, it's, if you read this book, and the thing is, I came in. You know, I've listened to your coverage of this, but I didn't have any idea of what the design of these characters were. And now seeing all of them here, this is just, oh, this is a just joyously fun to look at. Yeah, th- this is that moment in the in the cartoon when they break through and they cut to this. And it's a slow pan of all of them and then like a smash zoom back and then fade to black to be continued, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> oh, and, and you kind of knew this was coming because they've been dropping hints that. You know, oh, we each had to fight an individual monster, but then it wasn't like a real fight. It was more like a test. It's like so you you, you knew in the back of your head that okay, they're gonna have to they're gonna end up fighting those three monsters together. Yep. You know, but oh my god, it's just Trimpy again, just showing off here. I mean, the Star Child, the Star Child looked bizarre the last time. It looks more bizarre with the wings uh, that it grew at the end of that. Uh, Cerebus. I love Cerebus as a monster, like a a, a, mon- a a robot monster, mm-hmm. not like robot monster with the with the billion bubble machine. Yes, but a, a robot that is a monster. I've all, I, I mean I really dug him. I love the big blocky look that he has. Yeah, and that he doesn't he he's only he's only humanoid in the vaguest of senses, you know. And then the hand of five, you know, the, the classic Japanese demonic hand with the snake heads. That's only cooler when you realize the five snake heads can launch off. And fly around like jets. Now, are these designs specific by Trimpy for this book, or were these things that were developed by the makers of the Shogun Warriors? These three monsters were all designed by Trimpy for Shogun Warriors book. This is this is clever stuff here. I, I okay. it's it's crazy bat guano insane design, but it works in the idea of these Shogun Warriors, the Shogun Warriors book. Oh yeah, I. As I said you knew this was coming, but my, my response was no less enthusiastic when I turned the page and saw it. Yeah, and great use of, of a splash page to end the book. Yeah, and I wonder, however, uh, why is there a disco ball up there in the <laughs> upper right hand or upper left hand corner there? I mean, it just it does harken back to the fact that yeah, maybe the uh, maybe Doctor Demonicus is into disco, so maybe that'll be his downfall. I think you know it was the late seventies. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, overall, this was just. This, this is just a barrel of fun in it. It makes me want to go, you know, I did have to find these uh, digitally through means other than going to my comic store, but I do have all of them. So I'm going to go back and read the prior ones to this and then follow along as you do the show. Cause this has just been 
a, a ton of fun. Oh yeah, I've been really enjoying these, and you know, I've said, I've said before in the show that I literally found out about Shogun Warriors as a Marvel comic by accident, by finding issue number one in a random back issue bin at Charlotte Minicon a year back or so, and I have had an absolute blast reading this. This is an era of Marvel comics that I, you know, I was born in 1980. So this is way, this is before my time, especially as a comics reader. But the more of this era that I've read across different books from Iron Man to Power Man and Iron Fist to the Avengers, to Godzilla, to Shogun Warriors, I just, I've fallen in love with it. It's so, it's so earnest and so serious, but at the same time, like you say, just Bacuano insane sometimes mm-hmm. that you just, you can't help but love it. And, and this, again, a, bo- a licensed book about giant robots fighting monsters, this is just absolute fun. I mean, I cannot imagine a kid being disappointed at dropping 40 cents on this comic. You get your money's worth of monsters and robots for 40 cents in this book. You know? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, just uh, d- just a lot of fun. I'm, I'm really super excited. I got to go grab number 14 <laughs> and see what happens at this. Um <laughs> Uh, uh, there isn't not much in the way of ads. Um, this is funny because there's not one, not two, but three ROM ads in this. Uh, we get the house ad for the ROM comic, um, you know, Blazing New Paths of Glory, Imagineered by Bill Mantlo and Sal Buscema. Then we get, a couple pages later, the full-page ad for the ROM toy, um, which, you know, it's, I mean, this, it's, it's ROM. What else can you say? But then on the bullpen bulletins page, the bottom of it is a small house ad for ROM once again. So it's ROM-tacular here. Well, you know, ROM was big at the time. And I think, uh, wasn't uh, Mantlo, yeah, well, you said that Mantlo was publishing the ROM. Right? Yeah, Mantlo was writing, uh, yeah. yeah. So it was uh, another another Marvel boy, definitely, Bill Mantlo at this period. Mm-hmm. Um, the only other uh, one of note we do get, in fact, a hostess ad, and uh, this is a shout out to uh, Andrew Leyland and Stephen Lazy because it features Mister Fantastic. Oh yes, uh, unfortunately, like I said, my digital copy doesn't have the ads, but thanks to Mike's amazing world of DC Comics, I can look along with the ad. And uh, do we want to do a uh, dramatic reading of this? I, I think we kind of owe it to the listeners. Okay, who do you, do you want to do, Mister Fantastic, or do you want to do the uh, Gold Digger? Because well, I ain't saying he's a gold digger. But I ain't seen him with hey. no bro. Whoa, no, whoa, no, whoa. no, 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 no. Uh, family I'll, friendly. I'll, I'll do go. Mr. Fantastic. Okay, I'll do Gold Digger. Okay. And then I'll, I guess I'll do the narrator as well. Sounds good. Mr. Fantastic in a passion for gold. Gold Digger, a nefarious villain with a taste for gold and power to make himself intangible face to face with the incredible Mr. Fantastic. I'll let those blasts stretch me backwards far enough for them to lose their momentum, Gold Digger and send them right back where they came from. Nothing can harm an intangible man, Mr. Fantastic. Ha ha! Not even you can get your hands on me. He's right. Instead, I'll get my hand on something that will cause Gold Digger to deactivate his intangible powers. Hey! Hostess Tweaky's Cakes! Golden bars of delicious sponge cake! Cream filling, too! Your taste for golden goodness made you vulnerable, Gold Digger. These Hostess Twinkie Cakes are worth it. They're almost as great as you are. And I'm not messing with no bro... Oh, sorry. (laughs) You get a big bite of delight in every bite of Hostess Twinkie Cakes. (laughs) Oh, gold digger. (laughs) This is... Now, I'm not certain who the artist is doing this, because they don't list who the artist is, but 
the faces, especially in the face of Mr. Fantastic, looks kind of burn. Yeah. And the, the, the really kind of the surprised, happy face of Gold Digger, that's kind of a Bernie face, too. Yeah, exactly. So um, I'm not certain if they got John Byrne to do this, but it's <laughs> if it isn't Byrne, it's a very close approximation to him. But uh, yeah, this is... Uh, and why just Mr. Fantastic? I mean, I guess they couldn't get the entire Fantastic Four. I know they had ones with the Human Torch and the Thing as well, but yeah, but the they? Human Torch and the Thing had their own books at one point. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Fantastic never did. Yeah, he was always he was a. Well, maybe he's just moonlighting, you know, trying to get away from Sue and the damn kid. Yeah, well, I tell you what, though, you know, all of the there, there's always been the question ever since the Ice Master made it into the uh, the Masters of Evil in the early days of Thunderbolts, mm-hmm. there's always been the debate. Does that mean all of the Hostess villains are in continuity? I'm saying that it is. Because, to be quite frank, I like Gold Digger here. He's got a, he's got a cool look. He looks kind of like if the Vision had a kid with the Oscar statuette. Mm-hmm. And he's got sort of, you know, the Lex Luthor high-collar type look as well. The, yeah, and, he, the, and the classic belt. <laughs> from from the nine, Luke Cage's '90s tiara belt, but then he's got the power, the totally random power of being intangible. Because as we all know, gold is by its natural atomic nature intangible. Yeah, well, of course, you know, if you know anything about science, you should know that. Which is why he's a perfect ploy for a perfect foil for Mister Fantastic. Oh, yeah, I, I like Gold Digger, and and again, you you, you say the name like Goldfinger. Mm-hmm. And you get the you get the song reference. It's all good. Oh yes, I love those Velveeta commercials. He's just a liquid gold digger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this was this was just a barrel of fun, Luke. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed <laughs> talking to you about these shows and this comic. It's been great. Oh yeah, well you know I figure it's the least uh, I can do to pay you back after you had me on to talk about Iron Lantern. Oh well, that one of the guys. That was fun as well, you know. And I'm glad that you were able to, you know, kind of clue me into that because there were a couple of references that I wouldn't have gotten unless you were there to to fill me in on it. So thank you for doing that. We are going to take a, another real quick break, plug a promo in here, and we'll be right back to close out the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. Here at Quarks, customer satisfaction is our primary concern. I'd say we just found our way into a wormhole. I'm Kira Norris. Lieutenant Commander Worf reporting for duty, sir. You're the best crew any captain ever had. This may be the last time we're all together. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. For Starfleet, one of our most important posts. It is quite simply, Commander. The journey you have always been destined to take. Sensors are not functioning. You've lost all contact with the space station. What the hell is happening out there? Shields up. <laughs> Damage report. Battle stations. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Listen to the prophets. A Deep Space Nine Two True Freaks presentation with Sean Engel and Andrew Layla. And now with 100% more Paul Spataro. Tangent, an abrupt change of course. Tangent, to go off suddenly in another direction or on a different line of thought. Tangent, a comic event featuring brand new characters with very familiar names. I'm waking up 
to ash and dust I wipe my brow and I sweat my rust I'm breathing in the chemicals Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. Find it bi-weekly on iTunes and at greatcrypton.com. In the Tangent Universe, you only know the names. And we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Shauna, I'd really like to extend my, my deepest thanks for you coming on the show. I really appreciate it, and uh, you just made this a lot of fun getting to talk about Ultraman and the Shogun Warriors with you here tonight. Oh yeah, I really enjoyed it. And you know, like I said, well, I, I haven't, I don't think I've said it on this show, but you actually gave me the copy that you had, the DVD copy of the Mill Creek uh, Ultraman show, and I've been watching through it as well. And whenever you cover these shows, I like watching the shows back with it. It's been a heck of a lot of fun, and I really appreciate coming on, getting to talk about this, and just you know, hanging out with you because we get to do the Vault shows and that, but this is this. This is you know an offshoot show, and this is your show, and I'm really glad to be here. Well, I so said you're always welcome here. Now, um, you mentioned the vault. Why don't you give everybody a rundown of where they can find you on the internet?s Okay. Well, the the main place you could find me is the Two True Freaks Network. That's where my primary show, Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, is. That's a Green Lantern show that covers the comics from June 1990 until November 2004, talking specifically about Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner. Right now, I'm in the middle of the Judd Winnick era. It's an era that I'm very unfamiliar with but so far i'm really enjoying like, i've been really just to interrupt you, i've been really enjoying that too because i'm i'm familiar with the 90s green lantern book up until about emerald twilight so all the stuff that you've done after that has been great and hearing the the the, the judd winnick stuff has just been really really interesting and i've been really enjoying it and you've been covering a lot of uh like you did the circle of fire books mm-hmm. and some of the uh the 80 page giants and some of the specials so there's been a lot of interesting stuff for kind of a kyle rayner neophyte like myself to really kind of sink your teeth into these stories here Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said, a lot of the stuff I was unfamiliar with as well. In fact, the Circle of Fire thing I'm going to be wrapping up pretty soon, and uh, you know that was inter- that was an interesting read as well. Um, I also, like I said, I do the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror along with Luke and Chris Honeywell and the hair metal hero Chris Tyler. Right now, we're getting into the uh, we finished up the. Um, Italian horror series, which was really fun. I think Cannibal Holocaust will be the one coming out. And then after that, we're going to be moving on. We're still going to be doing Friday the 13th, but we're also going to be moving on to some Don Coscarelli fun mm-hmm. with uh, the Phantasm movie. So that's oh, yes. 
And uh, as of as of this recording, everyone can look forward to our annual tradition of spooky stories for Halloween. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, this time out, it was kind of interesting. I had to write my own story. In fact, everyone wrote their own story on a specific title. Now, we're not going to release what that title is here. You'll just have to listen to the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror Halloween special for 2014. Uh, I also do on the network Who True Freaks, which is a Doctor Who podcast. I'm on Walking Dead Wednesday, where we cover Walking Dead. Uh, what else do I do? You I, do that Star Trek show, uh, yeah, where we you just, don't bo- you boldly don't go anywhere. Yeah, the Star Trek show that basically sits on the space station, <laughs> listens to the prophets, that talks about Deep Space Nine. I'm and, sorry, I have every time, and I love the show, and I'm not much of a Deep Space Nine fan because I just miss so much of the early stuff that I never got into it. Yeah, but every time your show comes on, I end up singing the Dr. Bill Robinson's version of the song. We sit on our ass on <laughs> Deep Space Nine. We don't go nowhere on Deep Space Nine. <laughs> we Uncle Chadzia on Deep, Deep Space, Space Nine. Nine. No, we don't Star Trek on Deep, Deep Space Nine. Nine. <laughs> Uh, that one I actually have to attribute to Andy. Andy was the one who voiced that one. So. Oh, was it? I really could have sworn that was Doctor Bill. No, that was props that was, to Andy then. Andy, Andy, he he took one for the uh, team for that. One. <laughs> but let's see. Uh, then I also do a show off the uh, Two True Freaks Network with uh, my good friend Michael Bradley, and we are covering the uh, fifth week event of the DC Tangent Comics, and it's a show called Parallel Lines. Right now, where we should be coming pretty close to finishing up the first run of the tangent comics uh dealing with uh, secret six coming up pretty soon and uh we're going to be moving into the second wave of them that came out in 1998 and then i think we're gonna go through through the rest of the stuff when with uh the superman's rain story so it is a short form podcast but it's been an incredibly enjoyable bunch of comics that oh yeah that, that that's that's been another real eye-opener for me because i remember when those books came out but i never ended up reading any of them Mm-hmm. I wasn't a big DC reader at the time, so the idea of kind of reimagining DC characters based on the name, I thought it was a novel concept, but it didn't really grab me. Whereas now, I'm much more of a DC guy, and had, you know, if me then was me now, I probably would have bought them anyway. So I'm loving hearing uh, you and uh, and Mike and Bradley talking about Mr. Bradley talking about that one. I always want to call him Slam Bradley. <laughs> I'll, I'll mention that to him, and I'll, I'll slam start, Bradley. I'll start calling him <laughs> Slam on the show. Um, but yeah, that's like I said, I, that was one of the ones that I looked at from some of the ads in the comics and went, uh, "It's got a weird, different type of feel." I don't know if I'm into it, but getting the chance to go back and read those, it's just been a blast reading them. Much like, much like reading the Shogun Warriors was on this show. Oh yeah, and uh, th- thank you very much, John. Like I said all fine quality stuff to check out. Um, I, eventually I will be on Who True Freaks I promise mm-hmm. <laughs> Shag said that once oh Luke's been on Who True Freaks I'm like no I haven't yeah no we're we're working things out uh, you know we, we've got some things in line uh, you know until until some people get back and ready to come into the show we're, we're going to get ready because we have to cover we have to cover a uh, Colin Baker episode and you have mentioned that you enjoyed Colin Baker and you want to cover a specific episode on that so we will definitely yeah. be getting to that yeah, I, I like on the the new Doctor Who that uh, you know when he uh, that 
you know, when he goes and he he fights that one phantom in front of the hospital, and then he's got to stop him because he wants to go in and get. To, oh, wait a minute! I'm talking about Common Rider Wizard again, aren't I? <laughs> he looks just like him. I can't. It's I'm, so it's so <laughs> easy to confuse the two. I completely understand. They've got the same coat. They do the same thing with their hand. Does, <laughs> does Capaldi wear a ring by any chance? Um, I'm certain he probably does. Yeah. Again, just saying. Okay, if he breaks yeah. out the if he breaks out uh, the Wiz sword gun. Now I'll give you two guesses as to what it does. Um, whiz. <laughs> it's a sword and a gun. Oh wow! Yeah, you gotta you gotta love it. But uh, no, at some point I'll be I'll be on Who True Freaks talking about Colin Baker, and I promise not to just talk about Common Rider and Ultraman the entire time. <laughs> um, not the entire time. Uh, but uh, again, uh, all, I said all good stuff. Just one of the guys is one of my uh, every Friday top of the queue podcast for me. And mm-hmm. it, it always it has been for years. And uh, I said, who true freaks is fun. Listen to the prophets has just <laughs> it's been schooling me on why I'm wrong about Deep Space Nine, which is, is equal parts enlightening and, you know, uh, upsetting. It's like, wow, I've been wrong all these years. Well, and I, I don't. <laughs> what else it. have I been wrong about? Should I really be wearing these gold lame jeans? <laughs> well, on that uh, on that aspect, then yes, you are wrong about that. But <laughs> Deep Space Nine, you know, uh, to, to, uh, like I say, to each their own. There are people who don't like it, and there are people who love it. You know, yeah. we're just out there promoting the fact that we love it, and we've had, you know, we just did a recording, and there are some episodes there that aren't as good as you know what have come before. So it's like any star trek show there's there's good parts and bad parts but yep uh, all right well i want to thank you very much once again for being on sean uh really had a lot of fun this has been a, a great great bit of fun talking to you tonight talking some ultraman and uh shoguns and uh thank you very much for coming on and uh, again you're anytime you want to come on just give me a call we'll work something out because you're always welcome here in your destruction directive definitely Lou. thank you very much for having me no problem now i know what you folks are all asking with bated breath what are you going to talk about next time luke what's it going to be well we are going to be taking a hard turn back into film but we're not going to be taking a look at a toho film we're going to be going over to dai to take a look at daimajin from 1966 the first of the three daimajin films from dai kind of their sister series to their gamera films which features uh equal parts samurai story and giant monsters as the evil stone idol daimajin comes to life at the end of this story we're also going to be taking a look at shogun warriors number 14 where demonicus pits his creations against the Shoguns in what should be an epic throwdown of epic epicness uh, from uh, Munch, Shrimpy, and company. So definitely looking forward to both of that. Uh, if you want to check out Daimajin, the entire trilogy is available on DVD and Blu-ray. Definitely worth picking up. Uh, you might be interested in this, John, because it really is... I'm not, not just going to spoil a little bit. It's like 75% of the movie is like costume samurai movie. And then the last... 25% is giant monster. Wow. Yeah. That that sounds like that sounds like an interesting an interesting mashup. Oh yeah, it, it's and and it plays it both parts of it seriously. That's the thing. It, it it treats both parts with equal respect. So it's it's really a good one. And all uh, the three of them are said are available in one uh, nice package, either Blu-ray or DVD, depending on what format you prefer. So uh, we're checking out. So I uh, hope everybody will check those out. Come back and join us next time. We'll talk about Shogun Warriors and Daimajin. And until then, keep them stomping.
This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, we will read them on the show. If you'd like to visit our forum, you can head over to www.forumforgeeks.com and come on down to the Two True Freaks section. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Anything you buy during your next Amazon session after clicking that link will help keep the lights on here at Two True Freaks. You can also find me on Twitter with the handle LJACONE. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible. I was very tempted to do that. We will return with the second half of Days of Our Lives after this. <laughs> oh, Lord. There, there, was a, there was a blogger. I don't know if he's still doing it anymore. He used to do a thing. It was uh, gay porn or pro wrestling. And he'd just show <laughs> random picture of two sweaty dudes. And sometimes I'd recognize him like, okay, that's Chris Masters. He's a wrestler. I know that one for a fact. <laughs> now it's, uh, it's all this hybrid MMA style. And every you know everybody there and there's you know there's no, <clears throat> you know, no biting, no small joint attacks, no you know the one that is oh my brother at maybe at this point was what happened did you get in there and you tickle the guy? <laughs> he said the the code says no acts of cowardice. Does tickling count as cowardice? What are you gonna do to that? He's tickling me, man. I, <laughs> I know. I, I guarantee if someone started tickling me, I'd be just like you're you win. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get out of here. I don't want nothing. Don't want nothing to do with this. It, it, it it's it's frustrating to me because I'd love to be able to do something like that with Doctor Who, except we get BBC America, but I don't get it on my cable package. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm behind on watching Doctor Who simply because it is licensed but not available to me. You know. Yeah. So uh, I mean, as as much as I make fun of Peter Capaldi and Common Rider Wizard, uh, <laughs> for one thing, he's a lot older than Haruto. So, uh, okay, but another yeah. thing is that uh, it actually looks really interesting, and I'd love to watch it. I've you know I've really to just to say you know I've really enjoyed Peter Capaldi as the Doctor. Unfortunately, I haven't really enjoyed like the supporting cast, like Clara. I'm kind of cold on, and this Mister Pink character, you know. It, it, I think Andy kind of hit me when we did the Seeds of Doom, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the Seeds of Doom Hootra Freaks that we did a while back. Which was a great one because it has a Daikaiju in it. Mm-hmm. It's got a giant, it's got a giant plant monster in it. And it was awesome. It's like green mons. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, the thing was, Andy said, you know, what I want is good stories told well. Right. And, uh, you know, that's what Seeds of Doom was. It was a good story told poem. But the current 
Doctor Who seems to be, oh, we have to build uh, on this ongoing plot and we have to see things about what's going on with this character in quote unquote heaven and who is this mysterious woman and where are all these people going? If it was just the overall plots and not building towards a, a season finale, I think I'd be enjoying it more. But uh, the, it's it's good. It's think, not blowing I my think... socks off. I think part of the problem with Doctor Who as far as doing that is you only get, what, 13 episodes a mm-hmm. season? Whereas, again, I, 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 I'm going to keep bringing it back to Wizard because I just finished watching it. There are 53 episodes of Common Rider Wizard. Now, the last, 52 and 53 are a two-part crossover to introduce the new character, so I'm not counting them. So from episode 1 to episode 51, you have 51 episodes to introduce these overarching elements that are going to come to play in the finale. Okay, so that's four times as much as you get on a season of Doctor Who. Yep. And now, admittedly, Common Rider Wizard is a half hour show instead of an hour. But that's still a lot of times that you can tell a lot of individual stories, but also introduce mysteries. Okay, who is Wise Man? Who is the White Wizard? You know, what is Koyomi's origin? You know, why does why does why does Gremlin act the way he does? All that stuff because you have time to stretch your legs in it Mm -hmm. and still work. The, the formula, so to speak, to turn the engine on the, the standard stories. You know, I think if you had, even if you had 26 episodes, let's just say, of Doctor Who, you could have more stories where, okay, it's the Doctor and Clara warp in someplace and have to do something. And not have to build that because you have more room to stretch your legs. There's not so much of an economy. Yep. You know? I, I fully agree. Yeah, the, the the fact that it is limited to that number of episodes does does mean you have to get your story done in a certain amount of time. Yeah, and that that's one of the strengths of you know the um, the Tokusatsu shows being typically running for a year weekly. You know, they get their 52, 53 episodes, and they have a lot. You there, there's an episode of Tokuger where they all just they go to a bathhouse because Akira the um, uh, Toku number six, the guy who's the orange, to, uh, mm-hmm. Tokyo orange. He loves bathhouses, so they go to a bathhouse, and it's basically just a comic relief episode of them at a bathhouse, you know, with a, with a shadow monster fight at the end. And but we get to see them, you know, uh, you know, learn about Japanese bathhouse etiquette, and uh, you know, and all and all this, and, it, and it's like you know, you don't feel like you've lost anything because it's only one episode out of fifty, instead of one out of thirteen. Yeah. You know, it's it's two percent of the series, not twenty, not 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 ten percent of it. Yeah. You know, so did you watch the next episode of Tokyuga? Uh, no, I have not. Okay. Uh, I I saw the one, like I said, the one with the uh, the table brothers, and yes. I was like, and then of course you know uh, the the conductor meeting the uh, head conductor the of president, their, yeah, the president. I was like, <laughs> mother of God. <laughs> What is going through, you know, because I expect, you know, random weirdness with the with the sort of Sentai characters and the villains they're fighting. You know, that's that's fine. I'm, I'm accustomed to that. And, you know, the, and the giant trains transforming into the 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 Super Sentai to take them on. But the giant rabbit head. Yeah, there's there's no foreshadowing or explanation given whatsoever. He's just a giant rabbit. You know, and I, I thought it was weird enough with the conductor with a little puppet. The ticket, the, yeah. The, 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 the ticket, the sort of sock monkey type puppet <laughs> that he's talking about. I was like, there's a WTF moment if I ever saw one. I, I was hoping that you were going to say one of the revelations was, you know, uh, 
oh, what's her name? Wagon? But, yeah, Wagon, you know, does a little strip tease because I wouldn't mind that. I tell you, I got to find the one. There's at the beginning of one episode where she is just she, she's by herself in their main train car just like posing and taking selfies oh my we're like goodness. like laying down with her ass in the air and to and go click click and just keep taking pictures of herself in sexy poses <laughs> oh my goodness yeah she she makes me feel uncomfortable and i yeah. you know I, you know i know you've got the you've got the super sentai shows you got the power rangers shows and i know everyone who watched power rangers when they started had a had a crush on the pink ranger or the yellow ranger mm-hmm. uh, but man this just takes it to another level and the fact that that uh, she that wagon that you pointed out the fact that she basically has handlebars on her head yep. just makes it all the more uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, at least with you know whether I mean I I, I mean everybody and everybody loved Amy Jo Johnson, but I really liked Thuy Trang, the original Yellow Ranger. Mm-hmm. And it's like you know, okay, you see them, you at least see their faces. Yes, wagon every inch of her is covered. All you have is her voice. And you're pretty sure it's not the same person acting as her who's playing her voice also. Yeah. And it's just it's it's creepy and hot at the same time. It's yeah. 